Hello, baby. You're listening to My Perfect Playlist with me, Mark Nelson. Hello and welcome to episode 10 of My Perfect Playlist. Yes, episode 10, the big one We are here and finally, finally this episode is out. Huge apologies for the fact that it hasn't been released yet. There is very good reason for it. I caught coronavirus. Yeah, I uh, caught COVID. Uh, I got it about two weeks ago now, I think, and it completely wiped me out. It completely and utterly kicked my arse. It is a horrible, horrible thing. I could barely lift my head off the pillow for about five days. If you were out there thinking of going out there and getting yourself a wee dose of coronavirus, I would highly advise you not to. It is an absolute bastard of a thing. But anyway, still a bit knackered, but I'm back out and uh, got the episode edited together and it was well worth the wait. It's an absolute cracker. Um, It's a long one. It's a long one, I'm not going to lie to you. But I've tried to keep in as much interesting stuff as I possibly can. The guest, my guest, is uh, Richard Melvin, who is a producer for the BBC. He is the producer of the radio show that I present every week, The Good, the Bad and the Unexpected, which for the past three series has been the number one show on the BBC Sounds app, which makes a very, very popular show and one of the biggest shows in Britain just now, which is fantastic. Uh, Richard was also the mastermind behind the Saturday Night Live at the Stand feeds, the live streams that we did all the way through lockdown. It was him that had the idea. It was him that asked me about it. Uh, he put it all together. He put all the equipment together. He asked all the comics. He let us use his flat to film a lot of it when we were in complete lockdown. Uh, we also used the same flat to do this episode, record this episode, uh, and like I say, it's a cracker. Um, the best thing about the episode is I don't have to talk that much because every single song that Richard has picked, there is a cracking story behind it. So I've just allowed him to let rip and tell these very, very interesting stories. He is also, I've just realised I've not said, he is also the only guest we've had so far that knows what it is like to have a hit single. So, you'll learn all about that. Enjoy the episode. Richard, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having How are me. You? <laughs> this, is, this is weird, because we are, uh, we're recording this in your flat yeah. in Edinburgh, and we normally do the Good to Bad and the Unexpected. To put context for everyone at home, uh, Richard Melvin is the producer of the Good to Bad and the Unexpected, on uh, Radio Scotland, the most popular. Yeah, we've well, been number one on the BBC Sounds All Comedy app. Yeah, yeah, you know, it's been number head of uh, News Quiz. Just a minute, um, uh, that weird one with Richard Osman where you have to guess people's ages, yeah. which is actually strangely addictive. Yeah, and streets ahead of Breaking the News. <laughs> <laughs> it's fine. Yeah. I'll never have anyone from Breaking the News on this. Uh, <laughs> the uh, but yeah, so like doing it in this because we normally record. I come through at your flat, 
and yeah. uh, I normally stay in your either your son's yeah. or your daughter's bedroom, and it's padded up like a fucking cell, <laughs> yeah, and then weird, you're in the it? other room. So yeah. it's weird to be doing this where I'm producing this show. So, uh, I know, it's totally weird. And also the other things that we've done from this flat were the Saturday night stand lockdown yes. shows that were well, from the office, you know. We'll, so. we'll talk about that a lot yeah, later yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, um, how are you? I'm all right, yeah. Good. Yeah, are you going to follow up with how are you really? Oh, well, I can, yeah. yeah. No, it's, it's, a va- it's such a vast <laughs> question at this time. It's va- I think I'm on a four-day streak without crying, so I'm, I'm not pretty bad. good, pretty pleased with that. That's it's been, not bad. It's been a while since I was holding my knees in the shower. <laughs> um, and, uh, but, but yeah, no, like, I'm all right. I like Bond and Casino Royale. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> totally. No, I'm fine. I'm, I'm having a bit of time off at the moment. So, good. Which is... Um, a decision I made rather yeah. than the people around me made. Yeah. But if I'd kept going for another few days, I think the people around me might have made that decision. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? Yeah. Have you seen the new Bond film? No, not yet. Oh, God. Not yet. It's like, it's uh, the, oh. my kids went to see it with my ex-wife and then uh, Luca, uh, Ju- Julia's son, went to see it with his dad. Mm-hmm. So the two of us kind of have missed out on it, you know? So yeah. uh, there's certain things when you have a separation that you've got to deal with. Like my ex-wife, she got Strictly Come Dancing and The Great British Bake Off. <laughs> You know, and it turns out she also got Bond <laughs> this time round. But I've kind of got a bit of a rule with films because I've I've got I think I've got a short attention span and like th- two hours forty five minutes. It's a long. It's a commitment. It's a long time. I went to yeah. see it at, uh, after a gig, so it started at half eleven. Right. And I get in at three. Right. So okay. I mean, but it was quite nice. Like it's quite. Yeah. It, it does pass very quickly. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. But having anyway. said that, like if it, like you know that's a commitment. If anyone who's like this podcast is like already downloaded it or listening to it and they're looking at this going this podcast is two hours so you know and, and you're talking about <laughs> no, like, know, there's like two blokes talking in a flat <laughs> and you're saying oh bond's too long like the highest produced best written and directed <laughs> classic of all time you know what i mean yeah, yeah. with perfect pacing yeah. at every moment you know yeah. none of that 40 minute lull for james <laughs> right let's get to it opening song you've picked the woodcutter son by paul weller well, yeah, it's it's funny, you know. I, I like I I really laboured over this, you know, as, as mm. I'm sure everyone else who's done it has, has as well. But I, Paul, like, I think it's one of the things with I've, I love Paul Weller a lot, and I think something about him was the fact that you know I'm just a little bit older than you, so like mm. I'm 47 now, and um, uh, I'm 47. So when like Oasis and all of that. I was at university when Oasis kind of came out and it was like huge and all that. And I remember early on reading about like Noel Gallagher talking about Paul Weller being mm. like, you know, the, the mod father and all this kind of stuff. And then I remember when the album Wild Wood came out, which felt to me a bit like his sort of response to all these young yeah. upstarts, you know, and I loved that album yeah. like so much. And then I went to see Weller in at the Edinburgh Playhouse, I think about 95 or something like that, maybe even a bit earlier than that, 96, 95, some, sometime around then. And he his closing track was Woodcutter's Son. Uh-huh. And I was really surprised when he kind of at the end of the night and he came on and did that one as his big closer because I didn't really know it that well. I knew it from the album, but I didn't really know it that well. But when I saw him do it live, I was like, Jesus Christ. Like, I mean, it yeah. is an absolute belter. Actually, you know, cracker. it is amazing, yeah. yeah. Stanley Road, um first album I ever bought on CD really yeah I went out I I remember it very vividly it was about 94-95 and I went out and bought that and Jagged Little Pill right okay by Alanis Morissette and 
fucking I love I love Paul Weller. Like yeah. he's and yeah. you've worked with him. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well it was really weird because um it was a great it was great to work with. I mean, you know, we did a series for Radio Four with Suggs and we're just about to start our third series with um Suggs for Radio Four, but we were we made this down in the Hoxton Hall and like Suggs is, you know, you know Suggs is everything you want him to be mm. for the front man of madness mm-hmm. you know um, like loads of fun completely not grown up in any way shape or form um, a total party boy you know um, and we were making this show for Radio 4 and we had on guests as the sh- on the show so we were at the Hoxton Hall in London and um, we had Suggs Boy George Paul Weller and Jazzy B, oh. right? Now, as our guests on the show, so it, which was quite cool. And it was just me and Alan, Sean and Julia, like running the thing. And it was just like any other show we do here in Scotland, but suddenly they were, everyone was a bit more famous. But yeah. my friend Owen was like doing them, was a kind of musical director for it. But the weirdest thing about it was that like everybody like, so they were all calling each other. So like Suggs was calling Paul Weller, Paul, mm-hmm. and everyone's calling Boy George, George, mm-hmm. and then Jazzy B, Jazzy, mm-hmm. but I couldn't. I couldn't call Paul Weller Paul. No, I could call Boy George George. So I was like, every time I spoke to him, I was like, uh, okay, Paul Weller. So it, what we need you to do? Right. And it's the same. So it was like Paul Weller, Jazzy B, and Boy George. And I kept <laughs> using their full names every time I spoke to him because I was kind of slightly intimidated by them. But it was just amazing, man. Yeah. I mean, and he was just came early, did a sound check. You know, was like really nice. And his manager was like, and I was like, what's is Paul Weller? What's it going to be like? And they go, well, it depends which uh, well, because she called him Weller. Yeah. But then, it, so it was just it depends which Paul, which Weller you get. But he was just charming, and he was just super talented. He was so lovely, and he was cool as well, you know. And he just yeah. had like the, exactly the right clothes on. And the same with Suggs. And when they came together, when he walked into the venue, like Suggs was sort of like bobbing backwards and forwards like that, like you know. And then Weller was going left to right like that, like. And there was like these two penguins coming towards each other, but they were oh. these two giants yeah. of of culture, you know. Um, so that was that, and and I think that song with about Woodcutter Son was for me was the fact that it is just a full on, and there's something kind of mean about it as well. Yeah. You know, there's something about you know people get the sense that people don't like him. It's that thing yeah, like there's a yeah, murmur yeah. when I enter the room, and there's a when I leave, and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. I felt that it was him asserting his dominance yeah. on the Brit pop scene yeah. with that song. But it's funny because like the night we were the, we did the show with Suggs was um, something. There was an incident that happened. And um, somebody got punched, and because we were in Hoxton, and uh, it's probably be a bit vague about exactly who it was, but somebody punched somebody, and we had all the BBC management there, right? And we had everybody, and we just finished the show, and it would been great, you know. But it was all a bit, it's all a bit lively. Mm-hmm. It sucks, you know. Like he's got everybody comes. He's uh, like he's exactly like he's a big family man, you it's know bit, what I mean? There's twenty no- people, a little bit naughty, a yeah. little bit naughty, a little yeah. bit lively. And somebody from that group of people got in an altercation with uh, somebody uh, who travelled over from Germany to see Suggs, but then didn't realise it was a Radio 4 sort of spoken words thing, <laughs> performance <laughs> with a bit of music. And he apparently he was in the toilet and he said to this, they said to this person goes, oh, well, I came all the way from Germany. That was fucking boring. So the guy who was in the toilet with him, like, just knocked him out cold, right? Fuck. And um, then because of all of that, suddenly 12 meat wagons arrived, right? And this kind of bit of a fracas happened. And I was like, shit. So Julia and um, Al, I was like that, right? Get all the BBC management people, get them back backstage mm-hmm. right don't let them see what's happening out here like that's police swarmed the place right because it was part of london where 
whenever there was an incident like the stabbing or something like that it's like mm. fast response you know so some of these people were like getting this an ambulance turned up to get this guy and then somebody was getting arrested there's a police dog people running around all this kind of thing and i was like oh my god this is chaos I, i've got i've got to deal with this so something came over me which is i just was out, went outside and i was like right okay so that's the guy in the ambulance so he's the one who's going to press charges, right? So I just went over to him and said, are you all right? He goes, yeah. I said, what happened? And he goes, oh, I just got punched in the face. I said, oh, man, what, why did you come over here? He goes, oh, come over to meet Suggs. I was like, oh, have you met him yet? And he was like, no, I've not met him yet. And I was like, oh, you should go, go, go. you want to meet him? He goes, I'd love to meet him. And I was like, oh, cool, this is a real shame. Are you okay? He goes, yeah, I've just got a cut here. Said, you know, all this. I said, oh, right, are you going to press charges? He was like, no i was like no okay cool right so i then just turned around and i was like look this is really sorry about all of this uh, and they were all the police were swarming around getting cctv and i was like i don't think these anyone's pressing any charges here i think there's been a bit of an incident and the police were like all right calm down and i was like everybody cool he's cool everybody's fine and then at that point i was like like that and <laughs> Suggs appears he's like oh hi mate oh sorry about that like that and everything and then everybody just went away and Suggs looked at me and was like how did you do that and i was like I don't really know. I don't okay, really know how yeah. I did it. But everybody went away. And then after that, we I became sort of like Christmas Day friends with Suggs. Yeah. You know? And he was so, we had such a fun night after that. And when he came up to Edinburgh to do the show at Edinburgh, um, we kind of, me, me and Sean went down to see it. And uh, it was great. And then there was all this backstage do afterwards. And um, there was like all the sort of Edinburgh sort of hoi polloi and everything at this thing. But he was in this dressing room with a security guard at the front. And then I got somebody came over to me and said, Suggs will see you and Sean, but he doesn't want to see you or anyone else. So we, me and Sean went in and sat and drank like a bottle Amazing. of tequila with him in this backstage bit. Next song. Song that remembers your childhood. You've picked Ariel by Dean Friedman. It's funny, it's funny because like there's so much my dad was like really into music, you know. Mm-hmm. And um we used to have music on in the house all the time. And when I was the first when I left Edinburgh when I was five. And we went over to Germany, went to live in Germany for a while on an army base. He wasn't in the army, he was a surveyor, but we lived in on this army base. And my dad worked out that you could buy in Germany these really good blank cassettes, right? And you could borrow any records you wanted from this record library that was mm-hmm. massive on this army base. So he sort of went about recording albums onto these blank cassettes, right? But because he didn't, he couldn't bear the thought of a song ending halfway through, he would decide what songs to record off the record so they fitted on a 45 minute cassette right, okay. before he turned over so, Excellent. so later in life I found I, like when I was listening back to albums that I thought I loved I was like oh there's all these extra songs you know um, so we was always you know it was always like because um, we had a pea green Volvo and we because we, my dad had this thing in his head that's like well we live in Germany so we don't have to get a boat anywhere so let's get a caravan and we can drive everywhere. <laughs> so we used to drive, we drove to Greece and we drove through Yugoslavia. We drove to the bottom of Italy and all this kind of stuff. Cause he was like, we don't have to get a boat. So, um, and we just had music on in the car the whole time. And it ranged from, you know, ABBA and uh, Meatloaf and Paul Simon and the police. And, uh, you know, and then also a lot of Scottish music. And then uh-huh. when, when I was eight, when we moved to Croydon, you know, it's a hard thing for you to get your head around. I know that because we've talked about this before, but like when I lived in London, we were the most Scottish people you'd ever meet. Yeah. You know, like we lived on a street with, with other immigrants, you know, like with Irish people, people from India, Pakistan, Japan. Yeah. We didn't speak to the English people. You know what I mean? We, we were just the immigrants yeah. and we were so Scottish, you know, 
Um, I mean, I used to get called jockstrap at school and all this <laughs> stuff, you know. Um, but funnily enough, Dean Friedman was a, was a thing that my dad got into. And he had this song called uh, Lucky Stars that came out in, I think, 1980, 81, when I was about seven. And there was the other f- kind of follow-up song was Ariel. And it was this great song, um, which is like, it had these l- lyrics and it's like, way on the other side of the Hudson, deep in the bosom mm. of suburbia. And it was all this thing about, oh, we live in suburbia and all that. But then years later, and this is a silly story as well. This is a stupid story. But Dean Friedman, when I was working at the BBC, Dean Friedman came over to do The Fringe. right? Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, I'll, I'll book him on The Fred Show. And, um, and I'll get my dad down. And I'll be like, I can introduce my dad to Dean Friedman because my dad loves Dean Friedman. Um, so I did. And he met him. And Dean was like, you know, a bit odd, but like cool. you know. And he, whenever you saw him play live, he, he played his hits, you know, which is all you want. Um, and then after we met him, I was like, oh, you know, if you're in Edinburgh, if you ever want to like hang out or, you know, come around to a Scottish family for, you know, a meal or something like that, give me a ring, here's my number. And he rang like twice a day for a month. Hey, Ryan. Rich. Mm. It's Dean. And he's like, oh, hi, Dean again. How's it going? But he was kind of charming. <laughs> and my dad at the end of it was like, oh, fuck it, it's Dean again. <laughs> you know, like, you know, please do not, do not ever introduce me to Paul Simon. <laughs> right. But was, um, but we, I ended up like going through with him to Glasgow when he was here once. And we were in driving through on the M8. My, this is a very long version story, so I'll cut it down. Um, when I left the BBC and set up my production company, the very first commission I got was a show called Real American Folk, mm-hmm. Dean Friedman's Real American Folk. So I got the the chance to go over to New York to where Dean lived, way on the other side of the Hudson, deep mm-hmm. in the bosom of suburbia, and make this show. We made two series with him, with all this live music, and we did a live event out there. And, I, and it was because of, of all that moment and that song that I got to go to New York to work out there with Dean, and it was kind of terrifying because the first time I went out there, I, like I was staying in Manhattan and I went out to his house, which was up in Peekskill. So up the Poughkeepsie line, right? Mm-hmm. And um, I got to his house and Dean lives with a monkey. <laughs> like Michael Jackson. <laughs> kind yes, of. To. But, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, but the monkey, his monkey, I'm pretty sure it was called Amelia. But I'm not sure if that was his wife's name. So that could be offensive, but I don't think Dean will ever listen. But he had this monkey and the monkey made more money than he did, right? Because the monkey had been in a horror film, right? right? And every time the horror film got reversioned on DVD or VHS or Blu-ray or whatever, he, he, he got, got royalties. Money. He got royalties, fucking right? Hell. So this monkey was the fucking king of the house, right? And I'd got there and I was nervous about making the show. I kind of traveled all up there and I was like, got to his house, I was all hot. And uh, it's really hot, sweat, and I was sweating like that. And he goes, do you want a drink? And I was like, yeah, I'd love a drink. And he was like, what do you want? I said, oh, just a glass of water. So he gave, put this glass of water down on the table. And then he turned around to get something out of the cupboard. And the monkey jumped up on the table and dribbled into the glass of water. And I was like, well, I can't drink mm, that. I can't no. drink that water. You can't, you can't drink monkey can't, dribble. can't no. drink monkey dribble. No. But I was too polite to say anything. <laughs> so I just had to spend the rest of the day. Do you not want your water? No, do you know what? I'm fine. <laughs> <laughs> just spent the rest of the day parched, you know. Monkeys are like everyone's favorite animal. But they're actually arseholes, monkeys. Yeah. I got attacked by monkeys on my, my honeymoon. Um, Where were you? We were in Thailand. And yeah. uh, we were at, uh, so we went to Bangkok initially for the first couple of days. And then we went to an, uh, Krabi, was the island right. in Thailand. And uh, it, it's a tiny, tiny wee resort in this island. It looks like the, to take the Bond thing, it looks like the island they've got in the man with a golden gun. And... Um, 
there's there's only there's only the apartments that you stay in there and then you need to get to this small town and there's various ways you can get to it you can either get a taxi which takes you right round but it takes you like an hour and a half it goes right around the island to get you around or you can swim through the cove but mm. I'm not I'm not a very good swimmer like one day we tried it and my wife's a really good swimmer and I nearly drowned because I was getting like lashed against the fucking rocks and there's another way you can go is the monkey trail mm. and it's through this forest and it's, it's up this hill and then down again and uh, the monkeys are just hanging on the trees. And um, we went up, and uh, I went one day, and I went, I'm just going to go in, and I'm going to go and get beers, I'm going to go and get snacks and stuff like that. So I went there, and it was fine on the way there. And then I came back, but it's obvious that the monkeys have learned now that if you come back with a bag, there's shit in there that they would yeah. like. So these funk- fucking monkeys started attacking me. Like, from the minute I got on the beach, before I got on the monkey trail, there's these monkeys just running at me and fucking leaping. So eventually you kind of like, like it was at one point like I was kicking a monkey in the face and you're going, I don't even, I don't even know what's, I don't know what's legal here. I don't know how this is going to end. And there's other people watching me fight these monkeys, but, and then they survival is, yeah, but they jump. And then I I imagine a lot of people just leave the the stuff. I was like, there's there's no way you're getting these beers. Like it was like, uh, but yeah. Yeah. And and even in the, even in the resort, um, they had a guy, they had uh, hired a guy that would go around on a, a like a tuk-tuk and he would be like he would go around with a, a slingshot yeah. to get because one morning we woke up and there was a monkey just sitting out in the because we had a because it was our, our honeymoon we had like a jacuzzi on the balcony and there's a monkey just sitting in the fucking jacuzzi no. like having a great time yeah and then but there's guys apparently that go around with slingshots to get the monkeys away and then there was a uh, like an umbrella stand in front of everyone's uh, apartments and they had sticks in them. We always wondered what it was until we went down and we saw a German guy beating the shit out of a monkey oh. with one of these sticks. <laughs> so they've got like monkey beaters for every apartment. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Well, Dean's monkey was vicious. Yeah, no, they yeah, all are like vicious. And it was, but it was like 80 years old or something. What? It was like 80, it was something, honestly, it was like, and because it lived in this house and been totally pampered, it was like that old. It was like I mean, it must be dead now. I'm scared to ask. I mean, we got him Dean on our TV show. Yeah, this we summer, did. Yeah, yeah. You know, but it was a brief exchange. I didn't want to ask. So, up, partly because I couldn't remember if it's Amelia, is his wife or his monkey, right? <laughs> how's <laughs> but, Amelia? Yeah, how's Amelia? She's dead. Oh no. <laughs> how's the monkey? Fine. <laughs> yeah, totally. Moving on, your teenage years. Okay. A song that reminds you of being a teenager, and okay. uh, you're the first person that's picked this band, and I'm delighted someone's finally picked this band. You've picked Deacon Blue. When will you make my telephone ring? I love Deacon Blue. And it goes back to that thing of like growing up in Croydon and sort of being really Scottish, you know, and sort of having that thing of like having a real connection to Scottish bands. And, you know, despite the fact I was a little middle class boy at a private school, you know, when I first heard Raintown, you know, Mm. it's sort of my auntie sent it down to me on a cassette and it was like, it just changed my life. I remember it so vividly, you know, it's all that like born in a storm and, um, you know chocolate girl and 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 dignity and all of that stuff just i just loved it so much and uh i i i really felt that like raintown was like this hidden gem you know people that didn't really know know yeah. it and i bought every single everything they released on 12 inch um and i just loved it and in 1988 26th of october 1988 um I'll tell you. I'll tell you this before I tell you the story. Is that I t- I have told this story to Ricky Ross from Deacon Blue now, mm-hmm. and um, it's going to be in their book that comes out in a couple of weeks' nice. time, which is quite nice. And I thought 
that was a great thing they'd asked me to contribute mm-hmm. to their book but then I found out later that their book is a collection of fan stories <laughs> <laughs> and I was like oh, oh right okay fair enough and it's 75 quid if you want to buy it and it was oh okay okay cool yeah but um it was the well, first 75 quid for a book yeah but you get extras you know you get uh you know you better get a fucking dinner with Ricky Ross for 75 quid for a book that, that, that is the deluxe package <laughs> um but so it was the 26th of October, uh, 1988, uh, London Dominion Theatre. And it was the just when the second album hadn't come out yet, but Real Gone Kid had come out. Mm-hmm. It was the first live gig I ever went to. I was 14 and went with my friend Nick Allen. And we were, because we, we met and I can remember what I was wearing. I can remember everything about the gig. I was wearing these blue jeans, brown DM shoes, a double denim shirt denim shirt black waistcoat red bandana around my neck and then i met my friend nick and he was wearing something very similar but he'd bought cowboy boots mm. and i was like you fucker we mm. talked about that and he didn't tell me he'd got them and he sort of revealed the cowboy yeah. boots and we got to the concert and we were sat there and we were sat four rows behind um adam what's he called ian beale adam uh woodyett woodyett yeah and we sat four rows behind him and he was wearing a gold waistcoat and Oof. I was like fucking new waistcoats were cool oh my right? god and the gig started and it was absolutely amazing I mean I can't tell you I can remember like from the at, from the start to the finish it was just amazing and you did they did a Springsteen cover they did a a Van Morrison cover right that's how I discovered Van Morrison and Bruce Springsteen and all of this I remember him Ricky Ross saying this is our first ever top 30 hit single and they launched into Real Gone Kid and it was just you know absolutely uh-huh. spiritual you know and uh everything about it was amazing but what was the most amazing thing about that was that years later you know I got to meet Ricky Ross mm-hmm. you know and I've met loads of people you know through the job but never Ricky Ross was the one the first person who I like took my CD in to get signed you know it yeah. was the first time and uh when we make my telephone ring I just loved that song so much and when he came I booked him on to be a guest on the Fred McCauley show uh-huh. I couldn't believe he did it, you know. And um, but Fred was off, and there was another presenter sitting in who wasn't really nailing it. She was very nervous, and she she should remain um Kathy McDonald. And um, <laughs> when Ricky Ross started playing, uh, he, he he played when we make my telephone ring like just a piano version at night. I mean, it was total indulgence for uh-huh. me to ask him to do it. And but because she was kind of so nervous, it was the first time there's a talk show I could speak to her. So I was on the talk back going. Kathy, you're doing a great job. You're brilliant. You know, you're absolutely nailing this. Um, don't worry, all the next guests are ready. Just trust the questions in front of you. Everything's good. And look at this. We're on. Look, we've got Ricky Ross. Look at him there. He's doing this. This is this is amazing. Look, he's beautiful. Look at him. He's beautiful. And she was giving me thumbs up through the glass and everything. Then he finished the song, and um, at the end of it, the people in the studio clapped. And she said, "Oh, thank you very much, Ricky. Great to you." Goes our producer today, Richard Melvin. He's a big fan of yours. I know he was very delighted by that. And Ricky said, "Yeah, I can tell because I could hear every word he was saying in my headphones oh, as shit. I was trying to sing that song." Right. So it was like, "Oh, nuts." Oh. So that was uh, not a great experience. I turned to the sound engineer guy. I was like, "Did you know that?" And he was like, "Yeah." <laughs> um, but yeah, yeah, but the thing about that 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 you know is that they put an album out a while ago um and they uh put out that concert on cassette mm-hmm. and um as a kind of a recording of that concert i got given a julia gave it to me for christmas and it was the first time that after we'd both sort of split up with our partners and everything 
and um it was quite a weird experience for us both to because my kids went off with their mum and her son had gone with his dad and it was kind of like we were seeing family and everything and then we kind of got together at the end of the day at the end of the day um she handed me that cassette uh, she handed me the thing and I, and I was like, oh, it's got the thing. And from she goes, yeah, I know, you know, totally. And it was what, it was a real it was a real moment, you know. That's nice. Yeah, it was. So that might makes me think of being a teenager. Yeah. It's a great it's a great it's about because um, I read an interview with them um, when they released I think it was called the Hipsters. Yep. They released that album and uh, they were talking about they were going through Raintown. They talked about this uh, song and it's it's basically about it's a song that they uh, Ricky Ross wrote and it's. It's him waiting, basically waiting to be discovered right. as a band. That kind of waiting to be like they knew they were good, and they were waiting to be found. That's yeah. like they're, they're they're just sitting there waiting for this telephone to ring. Yeah. Uh, and what I was going to ask you was, because um, you've done comedy as well, as <laughs> yeah. well as being a producer. Yeah. Is there that kind of same urge and waiting when when you're produ- when you're making TV shows? Is there that kind of same not desperation, even though it is desperation, but it's not that you know that kind of like I'm, I'm desperate for people. I'm, I just I just need I'm waiting for this this one thing to happen, where like every every single thing you make, do you go into it going this might be the one that's gonna take it stratospheric or take it up a level? Yeah, I know. I think I know what you mean. It's like tired of wasting, tired of tired of chasing dreams, tired of wasting no days. Mm. What is it in that tired? Of, um, I think I know what you mean because I think um when I started off doing this is that, you know, I think I wanted to make, you know, Saturday night takeaway, you know, like mm-hmm. make that big primetime Saturday night show, you know, be the person who would make the, whatever the Michael McIntyre's big Saturday mm-hmm. night thing, you know? And I think if you told me when I started off in this industry, when I was 27, you know, you know, which is 20 years ago, is that I would have a career now where, we were making Radio 4 shows for 11 o'clock at mm-hmm. night. We were making daytime Radio Scotland shows and we were making TV for a sort of digital regional mm-hmm. channel. I might have thought, what the fuck? You know, mm-hmm. like, really? But actually, I, I think that what I've realised over time is that, that, that like, this, 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 is, this is it, mm-hmm. you know, but as in, in the most positive way possible, you know, we, I get to work with my best friends doing stuff that we love that is very well respected Mm -hmm. and this is a really difficult industry if you take certain lifestyle choices of being with your family of uh living in scotland of being available for all the things that you want to be available for then you know you could throw yourself into london and go down there and sort of be everywhere and do everything and but you're selling your soul in a sense for that and we took a decision early on where um, I took a decision early on when I left the BBC 16 years ago was that I wanted to work on my own stuff and things that with people that I really liked and I didn't want to just be a producer like me and my team we could produce never mind the Buzz Cox mm-hmm. we could produce the Great British Bake Off you know we could do that but I don't want to produce something that pre-exists mm-hmm. I want to make something that we've developed and worked on ourselves yeah so I know what you mean. And there's something about that, that there's always the million pound idea around the corner. There's, yeah. there's always the, there's always that thing around the corner. But I think when you look back, if you go, we're making a really good living, doing really good fun stuff with really cool people. 
Like, I wouldn't change this for anything. Yeah. And I think that there's been what I've experienced, you know, you talk about doing comedy and stuff, and I think what I've experienced over the last five years maybe is a sort of death of ego, mm-hmm. you know, and that's been something that's been really liberating of this is what we're doing. We're making a really good living. We make more radio shows for the network outside of London than anyone else. You know, we're making stuff where we've got real integrity about what we're doing. We've got creative control and decision-making process and we're making a living, mm. you know, and a pretty good living, you know. And and I think I'm really happy with that. Yeah. And I think when I started, I wanted it to be bigger, 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 bigger. But, you know, this... I think there's a... It's a, it's a weird balance because... If, if you do constantly strive to go, I want this, I want this, I want this, I want things to get better, I want things to be better, I want things to get bigger and bigger and bigger, part of you feels like you're not appreciative of the stuff you're already doing. Yeah. But then if you didn't have that, you'd then be resting on your laurels. Yeah. You're not really pushing yourself. So it's a, it's, it's yeah. a very, very hard balance. Yeah. It's the drive that gets you to this point. Yeah. Yeah, and you don't want to lose the drive. Yeah. Song that gets you dancing. You've picked "Staying Alive," the Teddy Bears remix. Have you listened to it? I, I, I've never, I never heard it in my life, and I fucking loved it. It's amazing. I isn't loved it? it. There's no greater cross generational party song than that because everybody knows it, but then it goes all kind of weirdly oh, techno and sort of a bit dark and everything. It's so good. Like it's, it's one of the coolest songs ever made, mm. and it makes it cooler. I know, which is it's yeah, unbelievable. Any, you have to listen to it, yeah. and it is one of those genuinely. It's, if you're in the ki- a party like for me nowadays any party I'm at is in a kitchen yeah. or uh, you know my flat or someone else's house you know it it, it, it yeah guaranteed dance floor filler so good uh, song for a road trip uh, down to the honky tonk by Jake Owens I just love country music generally mm. and um, this was this was a, we went on holiday to Florida because we got to meet some but we got to be Fiona O'Carroll, mm-hmm. who's one of Mrs. Brown's boys, you know, so she's in Mrs. Yes, Brown yes, boys. Yes, yes, yes. And um, we became friends with her. It was weird. We met because we got Julia Terry and I, Terry Alderson and I, got invited to this weird do to go and see Jim Jeffries in London. Mm-hmm. And there was all those people that were like, they're sort of famous, but they're not quite famous. And it was like people at this do, like, I think people thought I was like taking cocaine <laughs> because I was like going, who the fuck is that person? I, was going, I sort of know who they are. So I, went, I would go to the toilet, right? And then I would Google them, right? And I'd be like, Sarah Kaywood, Sarah Kaywood, they'd come back. And I'd sit back and I'd be like, Sarah, like, how are that? Do you still see Zoe Ball? And do you still see all that? Like, oh, he's Amazing. lively like that. Yeah. And then I remember looking at the next guy, who the fuck is that? I was like, I totally recognize her. Uh-huh. But then I was like, no, hang on a minute, who's that? And I went back down, so I just Googled again, like that, Googled again. Fiona Count, Mrs. Brown. Back from Fiona! Yeah. <laughs> Mrs. Brown's voice. Great to mm. meet you like that. But anyway, Fiona was such a laugh, right? And she her and Julia got really well. We ended up getting on like a house on fire. And um she ended up coming and doing panel shows with us and we've been to met, met her down in England and parties and all this stuff. Mm. We were out for a dinner with her and I was like, Oh, I'm thinking about taking the kids. You've got loads of kids, you know anywhere good. She goes, Oh, well, I've got a house in Florida uh, that's like 20 minutes um, away from Disneyland and Universal Studios um, and we're not using it this summer do you wow. want to go do you want to go you go for a couple of weeks you can just have it I'll give you the keys and it was one of those things we went yes thank you cheers great now what are we gonna have for pudding uh-huh. you know that was the end of that so she very kindly lent us her house for two weeks and we went over and every day we drove up to the resort right from her house 
and we drove up to the Universal Studios Resort and we had these stupid playlists with this song and down to the honky tonk was our sort of getting in so the car good. and driving to the, the resort and I just so loved it, you know. I loved it. Before we talk about the song, I love the fact that um, you were in the toilets <laughs> and then people would be waiting for the cubicle and then you just you just hear you go, ah, <laughs> fucking guy loves his coke. Like, absolutely. <laughs> This is about the 15th time he's just suddenly had a, a moment of realisation in his life. Oh, of course! It's like the saxophone player from Spandau Ballet. Oh, I was like, hey, Spandau's uh, the Kemps. Do you know what a honky-tonk is? Because I didn't, I, I'd always heard the word, but I didn't actually realise It's it a bar, isn't it? A bar where they play piano? It's basically just a, a country music bar. Yeah. And uh, Because this song actually kind of ties in with what we were just talking about um with the the deacon blues thing and that it's it's a song about like it's basically like it's basically saying like even if you're not rich and famous yeah there's still a lot to love yeah about life yeah and it, it, it's like the simple pleasure of yeah. a pub exactly like, and the, what's the line because there won't be a star on the walk of fame yeah. in my name and there won't be a statue a hometown statue of me you know um but like at the weekend i'm a local hero mm. you know, I'm at, so i go down to the honky tonk yeah and if there's a guitar call i'll go and play yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah exactly but it is the greatest simple play a pub is i think now a pub is massively underrated yeah about how good a night in a pub actually is yeah like I fucking love pubs. And you drink, I think I drink less when I go to the pub because it's oh, of course like, you do. You know, when you're in the house, it's. Yeah, yeah, and it costs. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Fuck that. It. Right. Walk on music. Right. Okay. Well, this is really obvious for me. It's Reap Petit, um, <laughs> uh, the one that they play at the stand, which is to rem- remind me never to do stand up again. Yes. So, because uh, I gave up doing stand up because of uh, a number of reasons. The main one being the phenomenal lack of demand. <laughs> um, when you realize the only gigs you're doing are ones that you book yourself, mm. um, it's time to stop. Um, but I really enjoyed doing stand up. And I, I thought it was really, you know, because I work so much with stand ups, like I thought it was quite essential to really understand how mm-hmm. it feels and all that. And um, when I first started, first ever gig I did was at the stand, uh, it was at Red Raw. I had this opening line, which I was very proud of, which was, um, I'm from Scotland. I've lived here all my life. Um, mo- I've lived here most of my life. I went to school down in England. Um, and as a result of that, I think in a Scottish accent, but I sound like a cunt, hmm. right? And the first time I said that line, it kind of got a bit of a ripple of a laugh. And this guy in the front row leant forward and whispered, that's because you are a cunt. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Like punched in the face, right? But I kept going with it. And, I, you know, and I, I, like, I really did like doing it, you know. And I mean, I did, and I kind of did the whole sort of, you know, middle-aged, middle-class, white man in a relationship with kids kind of shite. Uh-huh. And it was not really, didn't set the heather alight, but I kind of enjoyed it. I did it for about two and a half years and got to a place that was, you know, got to, you know, opening 15s, you know, mm. was where I got to in my level, and I, I really liked it. But I found it quite difficult to, act, this sounds weird, but to actually be, be, my job as a producer was more important than growing. Yeah. And I found it quite hard sometimes to sit down with comics and be like, I wouldn't open with that. I wouldn't, I, I, if I was no, you, I would change right. that. Yeah. And they'd be like, well, I've seen your set. Yeah, there's a clash. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it was yeah, a yeah. clash. And then also when it came to it, I, I then promoted myself way beyond my ability and we were doing a show for four extra and I was like I'll host it so I hosted it and um, I was like well I'm hosting this show at the stand and we had Boothby Graffo on and Fred McCall and you might have Joe Corfield you mm-hmm. might have even been on I can't remember but it was like because all I remember is one thing which was like right the way it was structured was I was going to go on and do these five short bits at the start 
and then we were going to edit them throughout the show but then we just whipped through it from that mm -hmm. point because see where everybody was at so i went on at the beginning i was hosting a show for radio 4 extra at a sold out stand so i had 25 friends and family there it's like this was my moment mm -hmm. you know and um i went out and i started and like no nobody laughed at my first joke and then nobody laughed again at the second joke and then it was like oh shit and i could feel sweat like bubbling mm. up on my top of my bald head right and i was like well i mean made this plan like i've got to do these bits and i started thinking well al he can edit in laughs or something like that so I'll, I'll just keep going and i was doing and as i was doing i could see fred mccauley and boothby graffo like coming in they'd been outside i think boothby would have a cigarette and they'd yeah. kind of noticed Oh yeah, the, the smell, the smell, the blood. Yeah, so they yeah, kind yeah. of kept, and I, that was because you know at the stand you can only see that you can't see the audience, but you could see people by the bar at yeah. the back. So I could see them. I go, shit, this is awful, right? So I just kept going, but it was like seventeen minutes, <laughs> right? And by this point, my whole shirt was like stuck <laughs> to my back <laughs> like that. I did the whole bit, and I walked off stage, and Julia was there, and she is the most positive and upbeat and supportive person in the world for me, anyway. And um, she just looked at me like that, and she went. Well, you <laughs> kept going, <laughs> like that. and I could not because I had everyone out there and all this kind of stuff, and it was like it ended up being a great show, but I couldn't go and face the yeah. audience at all, and um, and I just and I was like fuck, and at the end of it, like Julia was like, you got to go out there, all your parents are out there, your cousins are out there, like everyone's out there, you know, you got you said you had a bar tab and all that, you need to go and sort it out, so I sort of went out and I was like, right, big deep breaths, and um just front it out like that because it had been a great show and I walked up to my dad and my dad was like oh what a great show he goes what happened at the start like <laughs> he goes what happened at the start and he goes did did none of the comedians arrive on time oh god like that and I remember thinking it was the most crushing thing he'd ever said to me but at the same time he gave me my excuse yeah. Because I then went round the room. Hey guys, great to see you all. Who wants a drink? Sorry about the start. Mm. Fucking Fred McCauley was late. I just had Julia yeah. in the back room going, "Keep going, Rich. Yeah. Keep going like that." Yeah. And it was, like, "Oh, we just, wondered what yeah. was happening." Yeah. And that, so it got me off. But that was why. Just throw McCauley under the yeah, bus. Yeah, 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 totally. But it was like that was why. So like, so that's why I yeah. will never do stand up. Yeah. I've got too much respect for the art. Yeah. So every time I hear that music, it reminds me. Well, it's don't do it. So, so Repetit by Jackie Wilson, for anyone that doesn't know, is the intro music that they use for the Stand Comedy Club. And I would I would imagine is probably the most recognisable intro music for a comedy club. Certainly in Britain, I would argue probably the world, because yeah. there's not many clubs that have a signature yeah. tune. And yeah. it is, it's like I, I've spoken to other comics about if they are out and they hear that song come on, that immediate kind of shiver goes up their back where they go, fuck, what, like, am I supposed to be on? Yeah. Um, uh, so, yeah, and I, I don't know. But I can't imagine any other comics you'll speak to would choose that as their walk-off. Oh, music. Christ, no. Exactly, but, and that's why I've chosen it as a reminder yeah. to not yeah. think that I'm a stand-up yeah. comedian. Yeah, because <laughs> you know? we did, so we did, the during the lockdown, we did the stand live streams. Yes. And we had to find a slightly different... Yeah, camper version yeah, 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 of this yeah. song because the rights wouldn't allow us to have it on YouTube. Um, yeah, and Tommy was like, "I want Reek Petit on yeah, these shows." Yeah, yeah. so it, it, it was so subtle as well. So that normalised. That became normal. Yeah, because I can't hear the normal one now. So it's yeah. like, um, yeah. but see that. So because because it was your idea to do the yeah the stand live streams, like almost immediately. Yeah, you, you phoned me. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. Because we yeah. went in lockdown, I think, on the Monday, and I think you, f- I spoke to you on the Tuesday, and you were planning yeah. on doing something on the Saturday. I tell you, technically, it's, I would have got there, but Julia did say we should live stream something from the mm-hmm. stand. So I, I'd say she was the first person yeah. to say it out loud. But to put that in context is that we do a lot of live. We prior to COVID and lockdown, we were doing a lot of live stream webinars and doing mm. things for the tourism industry. So we had all the kit and everything. And then also, you know, I've got a strong connection with the stand, um, both from working there and from well being a director. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was one of those things that was like, as soon as you're like, oh, the comedy clubs have got to shut. Mm-hmm. It was like, yeah, we got a live stream from there. So the first thing, I, and then Tommy, who's, you know, he's still the sort of chairman, or I don't know what his job title is. He still owns half of it, basically. Mm-hmm. And then a few of us own the other half. And um, I've just phoned him up and he came straight round and we're like, this is what we could do. And um, we were there on the first Saturday. And it was like, for me, because we were working together doing GBU, mm-hmm. and I've seen you a lot on stage, it was like really obvious that that was the, exactly the right gig for you in exactly the right moment because it needed to be topical, it needed to be sharp, it mm. needed to have a confidence about it. So it was like, right, Mark, you need to host this gig. And the first one we did, we booked Joe Caulfield, Gareth War, Paul Sneddon, and Phil, Phil Jupiter. Yeah. yeah. Um, and we did it from the club with no mm-hmm. audience and it went better than any of us could have expected really you yeah. know it was amazing you know and then the next week um we were it was full lockdown and we weren't allowed yeah. to go there so that's when we got into getting people to send clips mm-hmm. and we did it from the office here and we set up the office which was really funny because we were so conscious of the social distancing mm-hmm. thing it was like i was in the living room sat in the bay window where we are just now where we are yeah. now yeah you were on the bit on stage and mm-hmm. al was at the other side of the room and we yeah. had to have it was like we had to bleach the toilets, have our own yeah. our own toilet rolls, you know, in two different yeah. toilets and all that. I mean, the second week, we were on the, the front page of the Heralds, mm-hmm. the Scotsman, the Edinburgh Evening News. We were on Sky News, BBC News. And then I think it was the third week of us doing it before anyone else did it. Yeah. And it's one of those things that I'm sure loads of other, every, anyone listening to this, because I think quite industry people listen to it will be like, well, I mean, we all had the idea and it's like, I'm sure you did. Everybody did. Everyone would have got there. Yeah. But the point is, no idea is obvious until you've had it and done it. Yeah. I think, that, like, not to boast too much, but I think we also, right until the end, did it better than anyone else did it. So it's... Uh, I think so, yeah. It, like, generally, like, one of the most things I'm most proud of in my entire mm. career because it was... It was quite, it was, I mean, it was tough. Like, I remember mm. speaking to Gareth, who's going to be on this podcast very soon as well, and that first week where we, we'd never done anything mm. to just a camera mm-hmm. with very few people. Mm-hmm. And we had no idea how many people would be watching it, and then we found out how many people were actually watching mm-hmm. it. And it's easily the most yeah. nervous I have ever been Yeah, yeah. going on stage. Yeah, there was like, um, I mean, there was, hun- there was, I mean, I think hundreds of thousands of people watched it. I mean, we were peaking, our viewers were peaking at like, Sort of like 50,000 at yeah. one point. So it was like 50,000 at one point watching it, but then went over the piece of how many people had watched the show when we... But I think we did a couple of we did a couple of things, I think, well. But one of the things I thought was different for us than other people was the thing was that you had to watch it and then we took it down. Yeah. Right? And it was... That was the point was we were creating a moment that you had to be part of. It was an event. We took it down. Yeah. It was an event. And then the second thing that we did and I think I have to give huge credit to Al Lorraine for this was even with the first one we did is that he it's 
our radio training yeah. of the fact that when you listen to a breakfast show DJ, he's got somebody in the room laughing at him, right? And that person laughing in the room is you, the listener. Mm-hmm. So we had, when you were doing stuff, you had someone reacting. Mm-hmm. And even when we were getting comics to send in clips, right? To send in clips, it's like, why has nobody got someone in the room laughing? Yeah. You know, why isn't there, like, you're in the house with somebody else, have them laughing, you know, and even all the other stuff that was going on, it took, it was people just performing cold to the camera yeah. with nobody l- laughing. But we had Al, who yeah. laughed, responded like a radio yeah. breakfast show DJ. You know, we had that. And then we had that moment of the fact of taking it down mm-hmm. and then also coming to terms really quickly with the fact that we weren't, and this sounds a bit wanky, you know, so shut me up now. I've had a whole bottle of wine. But um, we weren't creating internet content. We created content for the internet. Yeah. And we created something that what hadn't existed until yeah. that point. And it was 8.30, Saturday night, watch this. And then if you miss it, it's gone. And that interaction that you had and that connection yeah. that you had with the audience was second to none, yeah. you know? I, I, remember, I remember you saying to me... Um, I think it, it was before the... So we did the first live show, which was nerve-wracking enough. And then when we did them in this flat, where it was just the three of us, and we had no idea, which was actually became quite freeing yeah. by the end, because yeah. you didn't... Because you weren't checking yeah. the YouTube comments because there's yeah. literally no point. But yeah. um, it became quite freeing on what we're allowed to do. But that, that first one, I remember you saying to me, like, just treat this as if it's it's like your TFI Friday. Yeah, yeah. And that was like I was like fucking yes, yeah. yes. This is yeah, yeah. this is a thing I've been waiting for yeah. my entire life. So, well, it really was. But I thought I thought like the thing was is that you you really rose to it. You know, like I mean, I thought that you were writing jokes every week mm. that were really connecting with people. People kept coming back. But- two two facts. Yes. Before we move on about this song, that I'm desperate to say. Um, what song are we talking about now? Re Petit. Oh, right, okay. Um, so, this was co-written by uh, Barry Gordy. Yes. 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 And the royalties from this song allowed him to apply for the loan that meant he was able to set up Motown Records. Oh, there so, you yeah. go. And this song... Re- oh, yeah, it's a podcast about music, yeah. I forgot. No, no, I just like... I thought it was chuck- a podcast I, about me. I just like to chuck these things around <laughs> again. This song holds the record for the longest time it's taken to get to number one in Britain, right? So it was released in 1957, and it eventually got to number one. It became Christmas number one in 1986. I remember that, and I'll tell you why, because I think, I might be wrong here, but I was fairly furious about it being number one because I used to be such a huge House Martins fan, and I think it got to number one ahead Poss- of Caravan of Love. Very possibly, yeah. Yeah, I think very it did. Po- it would be the same era. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Possibly, With the plasticine yeah. Adv- it, a it music was, video. It was. It was. Mel- I think it was Miller Lite. Yeah. That it was. It was. A, it was a plasticine Jackie Wilson. Best song from a film. Uh, Tiny Dancer by Elton John. It's from Almost Famous. Yes. You know, and it's that moment. It, it, uh, there's a couple of things about it. Is, is that just that kid who who sort of bluffed his way into mm. being on that tour like i sort of always almost could identify with him but i think i love the song i've always mm. loved the song it reminds me of many things beyond the film but it's that moment of when you're doing this when you're in the world that we live in and when it, he's got that moment at the end when he goes i need to go home mm. and and she looks at him and goes you are home mm. Mm-hmm. I, I mean that gets me every time yeah. you know it get absolutely gets me every time and i can't remember the character's name but um, I did a job, I, I, do, I made a documentary for Radio Scotland called On the Road with Amy MacDonald. Mm-hmm. And I went round, I followed a, Amy MacDonald's tour around Germany and France and um, Belgium. 
because Amy McDonald, I don't know if people know, it, it, a few years ago was the second biggest selling female artist in Europe after Lady Gaga. Wow. And she's got some mad stats in Europe. Like like in Switzerland, I think she's like the fifth biggest selling artist of all time. Jesus. Um, like uh, like it's like the Beatles, Eagles, Fleetwood Mac, mm, Genesis, yeah. um, Amy McDonald. Hell, that's incredible. Yeah. So she was like doing all these shows, and I was like, and it was my the reason I got into it was because my friend Owen was playing in the band, and so I managed to blag my way to do it, and um, he kept calling me the kid's name from that film because right. I was like w- walking uh, around with my microphone trying yeah. to get interviews. There's there's very few songs that are specifically related to one scene from a film like there, there's songs that I've, I've I've been in films that were like uh, Power of Love for uh, Back to the Future and mm. uh, Don't You Forget About Me with The Breakfast Club with Simple Minds yeah, yeah, yeah. but this song is it's it's one scene yeah. like it's literally one scene and it is it, it, it's such an incredible scene yeah. it, it's the, the, the bit I love the most is when the drummer just takes his sticks out yeah. and starts drumming on his knees. And yeah, I'm like, yeah. oh, oh my God, this is... It's a lot, isn't it? Yeah. It's a lot, but it, it, it's just that that thing of like, you are home. Yeah. You know, it's that moment, we were talking a bit about that earlier, about, you know, the, the hopes, dreams and aspirations. And I think that's something about, you know, this is it. Mm. You know, it's not, that's not, there's nothing negative about that. Yeah. You know, it's like, this is what we're doing. Yeah. This is how we make a living. You know, it's, we are home. Yeah. You know, and I think for you particularly, and you know, and for us to a certain extent, so like we've we've made it. You know, yeah. we are doing the best stuff we can, and, yeah. and this is it. So I, I was really identified with that moment. But also, I used to work a lot with Miles Jupp on. I used to work with him every Monday morning on Radio Scotland, and we used to do the show. We did the bit. I don't know how we got away with it. We did. He used to review the Sunday papers every Monday on Fred's radio show. And we called the feature Jup's Eye. Wow. Yeah. Jesus H. Christ. And the line Fred used to read out was, Miles has been brandishing his Jup's Eye all over the Sunday papers, right? This was in like 2000 and... I mean, it's like, you're looking at me like, you can't say that, you'll get cancelled. But it was on the radio every week for like a year. You can say what the fuck you want on this. (laughs) But the point was, we did that. It was lots of fun. And then we used to drive back, Miles and I, in my Corsa after we'd finished the show, back to Edinburgh, and then we'd go 10-pin bowling or we'd go and mm. hang out, whatever. And we used to... And Miles had this sort of memory for songs and we'd sing and we'd play songs and we'd listen to all this stuff. And um, and I remember playing Tiny Dancer to him and mm. he'd never heard it before, you know, and having that moment with him of never having heard that song. And um, I just think it's something about it that gets me every time. It's like, why is Elton John a big deal? And for me, it's because of Tiny Dancer. No, of course, yeah. yeah. Elton John's... I, I, I cannot stand people that slag off Elton John. He is utterly... Like, this Rocket Man. Yeah. Like, if yeah, you've yeah. written... Your song. If, you, I, if you've written both of the... Like, yeah. you're a fucking rock star. You yeah, really yeah. are. You've written two of the best songs ever recorded. Song that makes you happy. Santa's a Scotsman. I wrote the song Santa's a Scotsman with my friend Owen Parker mm-hmm. and Dave Flint. And we wrote it off the back of uh, the fact that we'd had a hit about six months earlier um, that had a very specific moment in time. So in 2006, um, I noticed uh, in the lead up to the summer of 2006, I noticed that Scotland had failed to qualify for the World Cup in Germany. 
Trinidad and Tobago had qualified. Trinidad and Tobago had a player called Jason Scotland. Mm-hmm. Jason Scotland happened to play for St. Johnson yes. at the time. And uh, Trinidad and Tobago were in the same group as England, England. at the World yeah. Cup. So I, my brain went to, oh, so Scotland is going to play against England. Mm-hmm. And it was this player who, um, the player who people in Scotland knew because mm-hmm. he played for St. Johnson. So I got in touch with my friend Owen, who is a writer of pop songs yeah and we put together this song called scotland scotland jason scotland yeah and um it was a good song and then dave is a very good singer mm-hmm. and we recorded it like with owen doing stuff down in london and and dave singing into a mini disc recorder in my spare bedroom and then the song uh became a huge hit like it was nuts mm-hmm. and it was on the front page of the paper it, it went berserk and the coverage that it got and it got to number one for two mm-hmm. weeks in the Scottish charts and it got to number 19 in the UK charts. So it would have gone further, but we sold out of CDs <laughs> before download. We genuinely had like 10,000 CDs on the Saturday of the first chart day and they sold out in the day. And then it took us until the next Friday to get another 20,000 CDs and they sold out in a day. And so we sold 30,000 CDs. But we didn't have any more, so and it got to number nineteen so, in the so UK charts. So is there a factory that's printing these CDs? Yeah, it was right. in Poland, and it cost us five pence per <laughs> CD. The twenty thousand CDs. By the time we'd sold them, brought them over, and everything, we lost money on on the whole thing. Wow! Right? But it was an amazing experience. I mean, it was an amazing experience on so many levels because it got it got berserk in the fact that we genuinely sort of slightly became famous. Like me and Dave were on like. Guy News live for like six minutes and um, and then when it was all kicking off I got a phone call going when the game just started going would you do an interview for CNN and I said yeah I'd love to and um, so I did this interview and at the end of the interview I was like is that CNN Europe or CNN America or what which and the, the guy said oh no you misheard me this is TNN and it was Trinidad Nightly News and it was a hospital radio Listen, station in Trinidad you can't buy that kind of publicity no, you can't you can't so so after that it was like lots of fun but we were like oh, well that's a moment in time that's passed so we thought we would try and do a sort of perennial Christmas uh-huh. hit so we came up with the idea of doing Santa's a Scotsman it's a very fun song that has turned into being a, a, a real gift because Ken Bruce plays it yeah. every year. It's been used in on certain TV things and it's been used in the pantomime and everything. And uh, it makes me very happy because it's such a fun... It, it's a, One of the other reasons why it kicked off, though, was because... Do you remember when Radio 1 banned the Pogues song in 2006? Fairy Tale of New York. Yeah. of New York. And it got low, Radio 1 were getting loads of publicity. And Jeff Zazinski was the head of Radio Scotland at the time. And um, so he was like, God, look how Radio 1 are all over the paper. So he decided to ban Santa's a Scotsman. Ah. And he banned it saying it, ha- it contained too many national stereotypes because the chorus is, Santa's a Scotsman, come on, make a fuss. Mm-hmm. Too many pies, not enough exercise. Of course, he's one of us. Yes. And um, he'll have a nip of whiskey and all this kind of yeah. stuff. And he said it contains too many Scottish stereotypes. So he banned it. Mm-hmm. And that got loads of press coverage. And then after a week, he lifted the ban. Yeah. Like, and then that got more press coverage. So were you, did you know about the, were you in cahoots with this ban? Some nefarious marketing going no, on? No, no, I wasn't in cahoots with it. But it was something that he was like, he banned it. And then he said... I'm going to ban it and put a press release out. I think it'll do well for both of right, us. Okay, well, <laughs> like, yeah, so it wasn't, yeah. it wasn't my idea yeah, or anything yeah, like that, yeah. but it was just such a joy and it keeps coming up the song every year. It keeps something else happens with the song, you know, 
it, it's an incredibly catchy song. Like it is, it is, and it's a, an incredibly, it's it's an uplifting Christmas song. And it, but it's got it's got all of the Christmas, which I imagine were all Owen's doings. It's got the best Christmas songs have got the Christmas tropes in them, right? It's got sleigh bells in behind. At some point, jingle bells will come into it. It's like. It, 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 it's a it, yeah it's a very very and it's like, like how successful was it how, how how did that do in the charts uh well it didn't actually well we got to number one in the hmv digital christmas chart for mm. 15 minutes knocking leona lewis off wow. the number one spot and i got a screen grab but it didn't actually chart because we didn't sell cds of it um so you don't get that you don't have that naughty holder type do you want I'll tell, that comes I'll through I'll every single this song right and i'll tell you a few things about this song I had a conversation with my son about it this this Christmas because the lyrics of the song are um, it's Christmas time in Scotland mm. and my kid said to me just one question daddy before I go to sleep how will Santa find me so I said Santa will find you because he's coming home mm-hmm. so the point is is what people get with that song is that it's a song that says Santa will find you because he's coming home mm-hmm. because Santa is your dad or your mum mm-hmm. right so that's oh. what it is right so it's got that gut-punching emotion. Santa will find you because he's coming home. And to a Scottish audience, it's Santa's a Scotsman because it's us. But then, right down, you say the Slade thing and everything, right down to Santa's a Scotsman, come on, feel the noise. It's come on, make a fuss. And then it's too many pies, not enough exercise. Of course he's Fucking one hell. of us. Right? So every button is pressed uh-huh. in the song. And that's the genius of Owen Parker, uh-huh. right? Lyrically, it was between me, Dave, Owen, my dad. Like, we all kind uh-huh. of knocked it around. Um, but Owen created that build, that pop build, to the point of a key change and a choir and everything yeah. at the end. By the time it gets to the second verse of um, he'll have a nip of whiskey and uh, he'll have, and have a pudding supper and he, he'll come in through the window because the chimney is too it's, tight. Yeah. Like it's sort of, you're on the journey by that point. Yeah. But that thing about the song, and last when I said to my son, who's now 13, he was 12 at Christmas time, and I was like, you, you know, I, I was really trepidatious to ask him about Santa. And, mm-hmm. and he was like, I'm in the corner about Santa. <laughs> and I was like, oh, finally, I could sort of say to him, I was like, you know the song. God, I never, I never actually realised that. And he didn't give a shit. Wow. So he was like, can you please stop talking? Can yeah. we watch Taskmaster? Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, but it's really an amazing thing. And I'll tell you, like, through what we got paid for doing it, through PRS and royalties, through sales on iTunes, um, over the years, it's pro- we probably made about sixty grand hmm. from the song, which is amazing. Hmm. But that's divided up between three of us over fifteen yeah. years. Yeah. So, but basically, every year, me, Owen, and Dave get about six or seven hundred quid each, and it pays for Christmas. There's a bit, there's a bit in it as well that um, Scotland the Brave gets played. Yeah. Uh, and the guitar but, and that's another one of the wee hooks that is just but also um, it's doubled up guitar to sound exactly like the darkness who had done Christmas time don't let the bells end god so it is right? so it was double oh. up. It, was, it, it was like I mean it really was as quite a cynical button pushing Fuck. exercise um, it's it's the darkness solo from so it is yeah. my god it's the same sound wow there's G- Owen's genius that is incredible yeah amazing but also a little cynical Nothing, nah, but if you can't be cynical at Christmas. But Ken Bruce, I mean, he just played it, you know, and, and when he, he played it, and, and and he said afterwards, one time he goes, 
Sandra's got, come on, make a fuss. Too many pies, not enough exercise. Of course, he's one of us. And he said, that must be one of the best rhyming couplets in mm. pop history. Mm. Yeah. I mean, that's that's nice. So we got T-shirts. That's really nice. Yeah. That's brilliant. I love it. Right. Incredibly, your song that makes you sad and cry is also a Christmas song. Yeah. It's a White Wine in the Sun by Tim Minchin. They're all linked to me. And um, when... Um, the first time me and uh, my ex-wife split up, which was all very amicable and modern and all that shit, but um, the first Christmas, we split up in the November, this was about five, six years ago now, and um, she, we had the plan, the thing with the kids, the kids were quite young at the time, and the thing is with the kids is like, the kids are fine as long as they know exactly what's happening, you know, so they knew they were going to see their nana and granddad for Christmas, so you don't change that, so like they went off on um, Christmas Eve down to see their... Um, nana and granddad as was the plan and everybody was cool and it was all fine um but at nine o'clock on on christmas eve my daughter who was maybe nine at the time maybe eight and she had a phone and um the line in santa's a scotsman which is um christmas time in scotland my kid said to me just one question daddy before i go to sleep how will santa find me mm-hmm. so i said wherever he wherever he may roam santa will find you because he's coming home Nine o'clock on Christmas Eve, I'm on my own in a rented flat. And um, I get this text message from Molly. And she's with great intentions. The text says, just one question, Daddy, before I go to sleep, how will Santa find me? Oh, my God. Oh. You know. Jesus. And she was like, this is a song that makes us all so Mm -hmm. happy. This is a song that's like, you know paid for the divorce you know this is the song you know what i mean so her intention but like you know nine o'clock on christmas eve uh. like two months after separation in a rented flat of my own on christmas eve just one question daddy before i go to sleep how will santa find me was one of the bleakest moments mm-hmm. ever because in that point who do you phone yeah who do you phone yeah. At nine o'clock on Christmas Eve. Your mum? Yeah. Your friend? Uh, you know, who'd you find? Hey, man, how's it going? You hear the party in the background. Uh-huh. You know, your ex-wife, you know, your kid, you know. Uh-huh. And I remember it was an incredibly bleak moment. But what I remember mostly was sort of great solace in Tim Minchin. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and Tim Minchin's song, White Wine in the Sun, was something that had... Ken Bruce once played straight after Santa's a Scotsman and I had to pull over the car because I was in tears and White Wine in the Sun is the moment about Christmas which has got the sort of uh, deeply thoughtful stuff about um, religion and the bullshit of religion but it comes to the end of the song about drinking white wine in the sun and with his infant daughter Mm. being passed around the family like a puppy in a primary school and the fact that what she'll know one day is that these are the people who are going to make her feel safe in the mm-hmm. world, whether she's 10,000 miles away or 5,000 miles away. It's, you know, and in the song, it's me and your mum and your auntie and your granny and your everybody. And, you know, for me, it makes me cry, but it makes me incredibly happy because of the thought of like what we're doing and what I'm doing as a father and is, is creating an environment for my children where they are happy and where they'll, they're safe and where they'll feel loved and they'll feel like they can do anything and be strong and be powerful and make bold decisions in a way that we were maybe always too scared to. And what we need to do to do that is surround them with really good people because I want my children to know 
that they are loved and they are supported and they are surrounded by people who if they have to will get them out of fucking jail Mm. you know will do anything for them Mm. and I want them to grow up knowing and feeling that and that punches me in the face every time um it's a, I listen to that song. It's a beautiful song. I mean, it really yeah. is a beautiful... Like, there's very few of of these, of the songs that people have picked for this. This is one of the ones that, when I've listened to, I've teared up myself. Yeah. Because, and it is that it is that punch in the guts where he does yeah. introduce his infant daughter, because I've got a, a daughter as well. Yeah. So it is that kind of... There's something about... Like, are you a big fan of Christmas? A, yeah, I actually am. And it's been, like, Chris, like when you separate, Right, Christmas becomes one of those things that becomes complicated, mm-hmm. especially the first time you do it. You know, and it was so. The bottom line is, yes, I love Christmas because I love. I don't think you know me well enough to know that I love to host lots of people mm-hmm. sat around my table. I love cooking. I love it. Why? Why do you ask? Do you love it? I, I like. I adore Christmas. I yeah. think it's it's by far and away my most favorite time of the whole year, yeah. and it's. I love the sentimentality of Christmas. Very, very, very emotional at Christmas yeah. over various different reasons. But yeah. it's it's very interesting that it is the only time of year where it can bring up the worst of things and the yeah. best of things. If you have a bad experience around about Christmas time, you've not got that many people to turn to because yeah. it, for 90% of people, is a joyous yeah. time where they celebrate. So you, and, and you feel guilty. Yeah taking people away from that yeah. and at the same time if you find out that someone's had a bad time around about Christmas you don't know how to react you don't yeah. know how to mention it to people it, 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 because you then don't you know what I mean it's, it's interesting like a, it, it's interesting because the, the, I'll tell you the other thing is is that like I remember because I'm very lucky and I, maybe one it, I don't know what this says about me probably my own narcissism but you know to say this point again you, you know my separation with Emma was good. we were together for 23 years and we got to a point where to both of us it was kind of obvious you know like we'd just gone separate taken separate paths you know and so I remember like shortly after we'd split up and I was in this flat and I remember her saying to me because I was round for lunch and um, we were sitting there chatting away and she was oh by the way she goes you got your nectar cards for Sainsbury's I was like yeah she goes oh you got to get down to Sainsbury's because they're doing like double points on um, Christmas decorations mm. right so you can get Christmas if you use your points you can get Christmas decorations right and I was like, right. And she was like, well, you, in your new flat, you, you're going to need Christmas decorations. And I remember looking at her going, what else haven't I thought about? <laughs> <laughs> what else? Yeah. It's like, I, it didn't cross my mind, you know, Christmas Aye. decorations. So that Christmas, I remember like, you know, they were away and had that, all that moment. And then the next day I, I went, went to my sister's and my sister was having a big family doing everything. And it was so funny because I went round to my mum and dad's in the morning I was like a 40-year-old man, right, going around to my mum and dad's to open presents in the morning. <laughs> and my mum and dad didn't know what to say, you know what I mean? They didn't have the emotional toolkit for this, you know? And then we all went over to my sister's house and my uncle and auntie and cousin, everyone was there. And, like, everybody, like, it was the funniest thing watching. And that's when I suddenly had that realisation of, like, oh, yeah, this is so much bigger than, you know, us. It was like nobody knew what to say to me, mm-hmm. you know? So everyone was like, hey, Richard, how are you? Your shoes, they look yeah, comfy. Yeah. Hey, how's it uh, going? how did you get here you know nobody wanted to say how are you you know so it was a kind of funny thing but I think it's now since then 
become you know it was always uh, my favorite time of year and the song and i love it and i think it's sort of now it is something that is genuinely joyous because we have to think a bit more about it and like mm-hmm. one thing that maybe nobody would have ever predicted but like the christmas during lockdown was um at emma's house with molly and eddie and some of emma's friends and their kids and me and julia and we had a big christmas day all together you know which was a, a really good fun example of yeah. uh, a modern family might not have happened if it hadn't been for covid no you know yeah. there was choices it's like well, covid is... covid has brought good yeah exactly some the, in some ways covid is of great exactly. things so. th- th- this is your bubble yeah. deal with it <laughs> <laughs> you know next song a song that reminds you of a friend or family member thunder road by thunder bruce road. springsteen I got into Bruce after going to see that Deacon Blue concert, mm-hmm. you know, and then I've sort of had this experience where me and my friend Nick Allen um, got right into Bruce Springsteen and he wasn't popular. Nobody at our school liked him, you know. And I remember we were like in a car when we were like maybe 16, 17, something like that, getting stoned, listening to Bruce Springsteen and having this conversation, which was like, if people don't like this, then we can't like them, mm. you know? And then listening to this song again and again and again, and it was like on like the sort of 12th listen of like the first time we noticed the bongos, mm. you know? And it was just such a moment. And then we went to see Bruce together and we went to see him when we were young. With my, like my dad took us up to Wembley Arena to see Bruce Springsteen. And then we kind of lost touch a bit. We didn't see each other for a long time. And then Bruce Springsteen toured and we went to see him in Cardiff. And yeah. it was just one of those moments. And his daughter's called Rose Elite, called Rosie after this song because Bruce Springsteen did two albums before he got popular yeah there's yeah there's this yeah. song called Rosalita on it and um, uh, the song called Rosalita on it and um, we thought it was only him and I that knew that song right and I remember like when we went to see him at Cardiff Arms Park that he actually closed with it and it was like the whole stadium was singing it and we were like going, oh really I thought it was that his daughter's called Rosie and stuff but Thunder Road is the song which is you know it's got that line of like the night's busted open yeah. these two ladies will take us anywhere and we were away together on a like drive in Europe you know and we were in a car and I remember listening to that song and when that song came on and we sort of saw the road in front of us like both of us we had to pull over because we were both crying mm. but tears of joy yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. and I mean my obsession with Bruce Springsteen is such that for my 40th birthday party I had a dress like <laughs> Bruce Springsteen party yeah yeah so what's your favorite era Springsteen fantastic question his first two albums are mm-hmm. next level I mean on my wall there I've got his first album um, uh, on the wall but I actually like what he's doing now yeah, better than almost anything and I actually was watching Western Stars that film he made last mm-hmm. night it's Springsteen on Broadway which is he just did is uh, outrageous um, uh, Western Stars the album he did before that is, is so good you know so I think his current work now which is very reflective is maybe my favourite stuff that he's done for ages. Um, but probably first two albums. The thing about Bruce Springsteen, most songs of his I don't like. Mm. <laughs> right, okay. You know, and, and a lot of them is like, you know, like Born in the USA album is one, and you're like, oh, it's kind of all a bit blah, uh-huh. you know. But I like the fact that the album cover is a picture of him having a piss on the American flag. Yeah. 
and the song "Born in the USA" is all about how terrible it is to be born in the USA, and it was used for this is what Ronald I love. Reagan's That's what I love about it. Yeah, 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 you know? yeah. And also "Dancing in the Dark," which has got this really fun video of him dancing with that girl from Friends, Courtney, Courtney Cox, Cox yeah. and all that is like. I hate myself. I want to change my hair, my clothes, my face. Like, there's got to be something, you know, about that. So, um, I do just can't put my finger on the favorite era. But the beginning, like Sandy, Rosalita, the second album was probably my absolute favorite. Then, you know, Born to Run. I mean, but have you listened to his one of his most recent albums, Western Stars, mm-hmm. which is where he's you realize he's writing something that is the great American songbook. You know, he puts himself in the position of these people, and there's a song about a kind of actor who's had his day, and it, it's got this song about how you know he was once in a scene with John Wayne in a in a film, but like now he's in like car adverts, and you know, and he's not quite right. in, and selling doing a Viagra advert, and he's like, but he's got this line in it which is which is like, yeah, I, I was in a scene. John Wayne shot me dead in a film, you know, forty years ago, but like you know, if you will buy me a drink, I'll tell you the story. You know, I don't know. I, I, something wonderful about that sort of circle of his. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, I don't know, but I love it. I just love Bruce Springsteen, and I'm I'm okay with being a basic bitch about that. I'm okay with the fact that he is such a me- majorly popular. I don't think there's anything. Artist. I think there's it, but it's like the Elton John stuff we talked about. Like, yeah. it's, there's nothing basic yeah, about yeah, yeah. liking the best people that have ever made yeah. music. It's yeah. not a for a karaoke song. You've picked Paradise by the Dashboard Light. Yeah. By Meatloaf. Well, I put Paradise by the Dashboard Light alongside Reap Petit mm-hmm. because it's an example of why I would never do karaoke, mm-hmm. right? Because I can't sing. People like me aren't given proper talent, right? You know, I can't sing, play piano. I've got no discernible talent. I'm a radio producer. I don't know how to edit, you know. Um, so Paradise by the Dashboard Light is I've seen some people do it on karaoke. You could really sing. And mm-hmm. every now and again, you get that moment when you're at a karaoke night and someone's like, fucking hell. They could do it, but it's such a great song. And it goes, is it nine and a half minutes long or something? It's eight and a half. Eight and a half minutes And it was long. a single. Yeah. They released, do you know how long it was supposed to be? <laughs> 27 minutes. Yeah, absolutely. The first, the first cut of that was 27 minutes. Pure and, arrogance, and like the open spot. Meatlo- yeah, but, but <laughs> like, Meatloaf... Yeah, but Meatloaf... I could do half an hour. Meatloaf and Jim Stein went, yeah, release it. And yeah. it was a record company that went, hey, we can't release a 27 minute single here we, we simply can't like that that's longer than an episode of the top of the pops yeah so totally. it's not the, well the thing about as i like as well because i fall out a lot of, with um of sean in particular who's into dance music and techno and all that stuff and i think that like when you're listening to dance music and all that stuff and there's that when they drop the beat mm-hmm. right that is as cynical as a key change yeah right you know you're manipulating emotions right? yeah you know so the key change in michael jackson's man in the mirror is just the same as calvin harris like you know dropping a beat like that which really winds up mm-hmm. people who take dance music seriously but in paradise by the dashboard light the build up 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 to him going and now i'm praying for the end yeah. of time it's just so yeah. funny and so brilliant and I, if i had it in me to be able to pull that off on the karaoke i would absolutely do it it's, I can't sing. I can't sing a note. It's an amazing song because because it is. It's in so it's in three parts, and it's it, it it it's such a for such a dramatic song. It is just about a guy 
trying to get his hole yeah. in a car. That's that's all it's <laughs> yeah. about. In a slightly sort of weird weird way. I don't, you know, I, don't, I, don't I don't even think it's in a weird way because he he's just he's just because there's so many Meatloaf songs that are same with Springsteen songs. They're so they're so car related, but they're so yeah. they're so entrenched in that kind of fifties drive-in movie, yeah. driving up to the cliff, making out mm. vibe kind of thing. Mm. And this is basically a guy that's driven the girl he's going out with out in a car, yeah. and he's trying to get her to have sex with him in the car. Yeah. And then it follows the entire story. It yeah. follows the entire story to the point where he's almost got there, yeah. and it cuts out to a fucking baseball, Stop like a baseball right and. But there's a baseball yeah. analogy where the guy's talking about people getting to different bases, and like, and it builds up, and he's almost there, he's almost there, and then she comes in with a yeah. the stop right there, yeah. and then gets him to make make him say that he loves her and yeah. that he's going to marry her, and yeah. then he finally agrees with that just so he can get his hole, and then regrets it for the rest of his life. Yeah, yeah. Best song he's seen live, Anchorage by Michelle Shocked. Hey, Michelle, you know it's kind of funny. Texas always seems so big, but you know you're in the largest state in the union when you're anchored down in Anchorage. Hey girl, I think the last time I saw you was on me and Leroy's wedding day. Uh, when I went to New York, I met Latch and Latch, uh, who you know yeah. as well, uh, amazing guy, poet, like, you know, one of those guys who's just so talented, so amazing, but so undiscovered, you know, like, I mean, you can't sell a ticket for a Latch show, you know, even if you pay people to come. Um, <laughs> but we did three series on Radio 4 with Latch and it was quite funny getting his show commissioned um, because I brought him, I met him in New York and he ran the, he ran the longest running uh, open mic night in Manhattan. And it was incredible. And he had people coming through his club like Jeff Buckley, Regina Spector, mm-hmm. Lady Gaga, uh, Michelle Shock, Suzanne Vega, all this thing. It was amazing. And, we, and I brought him over from New York and we ran the anti-hoot at the Gilded Balloon at vast personal expense. And I put together a show with him called The Day I Went Insane, which was a great show. You know, it was amazing. And we ended up getting it commissioned. But the next year he was doing the show and I'd managed to get this interest from Radio 4. And he was the first person I got commissioned on Radio 4 Latch. And... um. I persuaded the commissioner to come and see him and it was at midnight on a Tuesday at the uh, counting house and there's no one was going at all. There was no one going. So I like basically was like got every single person I know to come to this show, right? And everybody, I was like, look, you've got to come, man. This commissioner come, but, but, but I'm going to be elsewhere and I'm going to come in and when I come in, don't let on that you know me, right? Because we were basically mm. punking the commissioner that he had 50 people there on a Tuesday night, you know? And um, everybody did it because they knew how much I'd sort of really cared about this guy, really believed in him and everything. So everybody came down and just before the show started, I arrived and it's got the bar outside and people mm. milling about and everybody had got the memo of like, don't speak to Richard and the commissioner. So it was the weirdest thing because it was like being at my own funeral because <laughs> all my closest friends and family were there, right? And But they weren't talking to me, you know, like they were ignoring me and it was like I was dead, you know? <laughs> So we got in, everyone was sitting down and I came through and I was like literally passing my best friends without eye contact or anything. And I sat down and then my sister um, arrived late and just before Latch got on, she walked into the room, little fringe room like that. She walked in and she was like, hey, Johnny, hey, guy, mum, all right, all right, Granny, what are you doing here? Oh my God. Like that, and they came down, sat down next to me. Sorry, I'm late. I can't believe everyone's here. I got your text. What's the occasion? Like that. And I was like, um, this is 
uh, Caroline Raphael, uh, the commissioning editor for Radio 4. Uh, but she's like, oh, hi. And then Caroline was like, do you know these? And then the lights went down and Latch came on and like smashed Jesus. it, right? So it was kind of like amazing moment. And we got the show commission. We did three series and they were really, really brilliant, really brilliant shows. But like Latch then kind of always had this sort of amazing ability to support a creative community and what he did in New York was amazing. And one of his good friends, Michelle Schock, got absolutely massively mm. cancelled early on, you know, and um, she was taken out of context. She said some stuff. It was taken out of context. It went massive in America and she was like, ban. And what she said was, um, you know, she'd been a huge campaigner for gay rights throughout her whole career. And she said something where she she's quite religious and she said something about where how she could understand why these people who who her religious community she could understand why they were against gay marriage she could understand where they were coming from and she it was filmed in a way and then put on the internet that she was like i can understand why people are against gay marriage and it there was this huge reaction to that um in america she was banned cancelled everywhere you know it wasn't what she who she was or what she believed in but she said it you know mm -hmm. and it was taken it was filmed and it was put in this place and um you know, and it was hard for her, but it was hard for Latch because he was really close friends mm -hmm. with her, you know. And um, what he was the first person for me to say, well, I know this person. I know what she stands for. I know what her heart and soul is. You know, I know she's been taken out of context here and I know she said something. And if she was given the chance to go and do it again, she probably wouldn't do it again. So he was running um, the Newtown Theatre that year as a creative director and he was putting some shows on and he invited Michelle shocked over um to come and do some shows and then run and from her point of view she said he was the first person to reach a hand out to her and i remember the day she arrived we were sat outside the theater and i was with julia and al and sean and latch and she arrived and we greeted her with open arms and she was very grateful for that moment you know to have that moment um where she could see her redemption coming and it wasn't really anything to do with us but she did a run there and it was a few years ago so my daughter molly was about 12 and i took molly one night and it was quite late and it was on a weekday and she was maybe only 11 or something or 12 and i took i said come we'll go and see this show and we went to see it and it hadn't sold like a proper fringe show and it was this huge room but michelle knew how to create a campfire mm. atmosphere and um in a true storytelling singer songwriter way so she got everybody to get their chairs and bring them onto the stage right nice. so she sat on a chair on the stage and then there was like 30 of us or something we brought all our chairs onto the stage and um the lights went down and um she did the whole of the short sharp shocked alb album like in order and my dad was there and he was over there and um i was sat with um molly and molly knew that i loved the the, the song Anchorage and Michelle had kind of knew that we were friends with Latch and knew that I brought my daughter to the show you know so it was like kind of made a little bit of a fuss of us mm. you know just sort of made our presence felt a little bit and she sang a version of Anchorage that probably lasted about 12 or 14 minutes where the bits of the song and it's like you know I haven't seen you since our wedding day you know what was that laugh song you sang like that and then she stopped and she was like, well, on their wedding day is like I was there and, I, and I'll tell you the love song I sang. And then she started playing the All love right. song that she sang. 
and then there's a bit about um I sound like a housewife and then she had a baby who's just got a new tooth and then she stops she goes well that baby's now 22 years old right and I'll tell you what he's doing has told these stories and it was one of those most magical storytelling that only those beat poets those people who are mad to live mad to die and desirous of everything at once the people who never yawn or say a commonplace thing can do yeah and you only meet them rarely latch is one of them and michelle shocked was one of them and the way that she held that room in the palm of her hand and the way that she told that story and directed it to me and my daughter oh, was man. one of the most special moments that's amazing it was yeah. amazing yeah you know yeah but in the context of she's been cancelled yeah. uh, are we yeah. okay yeah. To, but yeah, i was like yeah, do you know yeah, what yeah, yeah we are okay because yeah. her heart and soul is good you yeah. know yeah annoys me the most about that right is that she didn't even she didn't even express an opinion what mm. she did was she understood why a certain group of people had an opinion had an opinion about that mm. and i think that's 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 what annoys me the most about society now yeah. and the fact that yeah. you literally cannot have any different opinion to anyone mm. like hate speech quite rightly get rid of it right mm. if someone is causing a problem with what they're saying and someone is harming people with their views but it's now got to the point where you can't even listen to other people's you can't even disagree with people's views anymore and i think that i think that there's little gray area is i think that if you break the law then you go to jail exactly or you take the consequences. exactly yeah yeah and if you break the law through hate speech through yes. being an absolute cunt yes then you you but the thing is is that the you know, it, it, I, I also understand two things here. And one of them is that, that you don't have the right to not be offended. Mm-hmm. Because you might be offended by football tops. Mm-hmm. You might be offended by cars because somebody you know was killed by a car, right? Mm-hmm. You know, you might be... So I don't know what's going to offend you. So you don't have the right to be in an environment and you don't have the right to not be offended. So that, I think, is quite a huge thought in... Therefore, people should be able to. When people say you can't say anything these days, you actually can. You, no, you can, can say, say anything. You, you just can don't say break the, the law. You want. Yeah, yeah. You just can, don't break yeah, the law. Yeah. You know, and don't be a cunt. Right. Sorry to use that word again. But the other side of that is that there's a difference that I think I need to be mindful of, and maybe you need to be mindful of as well. Of like, you know, it's that thing about status. You know, and like, you know, when you're a 47 year old white man who runs a business, is that there's a huge difference between my intention and my impact Mm -hmm. so if i say something where my intention is really good that's one thing but if the impact is quite negative then that's something i need to be really mindful of so i think that's something that is a learning point whereas it's like your intention can be as all you want but if the impact is actually really hard on the people around you Uh then that's something that i should really take on board yeah no i agree but i don't think in in that situation i don't think there is any I don't think what Michelle Shock does is any right. has, has done any damage to anyone yeah. at all. I don't think listening to other people's opinions and listening yeah. to other people's points of views and feelings, yeah, yeah, should then impact, yeah, badly on you. Like, yeah, you're not siding with them. What you're doing is, I can understand why those people. Yeah. I might not agree with it. I yeah, might yeah, agree yeah, with yeah, it. Yeah, I might yeah. agree with it wholeheartedly. I might yeah, completely yeah. disagree with it. Yeah, but I can understand why they might. Cover version, best cover version. I can see clearly now by Hot House Flowers. I can see clearly now the rain is done. I can see all obstacles in my way. Gone are the dark clouds that had me blind. Yeah, 
there was a lot there as well you know like a lot of cover versions but Hot House Flowers I mean I used to back in the day when I lived in Croydon I had this job when I was 15 years old nine months I got my national insurance card and I got a job at Sainsbury's in Croydon and I worked all day Saturday and late night Thursdays I got paid 33 quid a week and I was rich beyond my wildest dreams and I used to just go and see bands because I was a little chubby young looking kid so I couldn't get into pubs or buy booze or anything and it was like six quid to go and see a band you know I went to see Depeche Mode Prince I went to see uh, Sinead O'Connor The The with Johnny Marr on guitar um, Deacon Blue numerous times um I saw Clapton, I saw uh, In Excess twice, you know, I saw George Michael, I saw loads of people, and that's what I went to do. And Hot House Flowers became an obsession of mine. Mm. And um, I remember going to see them in small venues and um, all this, and then they ended up supporting In Excess at Wembley Stadium. And I remember being right at the front of the the show, and it was the first time I saw them do I Can See Clearly Now. And it was just an amazing experience that blew my mind. And then what happened later was that I went with my friend uh, Nick, who I've talked about before, we went to Israel to do a kibbutz. And it was when we did a gap year, because that's what people at my school did. <laughs> right? We went to a kibbutz, you know, to do a gap year. And um, uh, his girlfriend at the time sent us out the new Hot House Flowers album. And it had, I can see clearly now on it. And we'd both been at that game. It was fucking amazing, you know, and it was like such a brilliant version of that song. Yeah. And that whole experience at that time is why I kind of do this job now. You know, but it's why I do this job now, but also like sort of what nearly got me in a lot of trouble recently, nearly got me in, we talk about getting cancelled. Mm. I mean, I nearly got, very much nearly got cancelled recently, but because of uh, a misunderstanding. But um, when we were out there and we we're into this song and, you know, we're in Israel and everything, it's like I got this opportunity to learn, to teach it. Because when you're on a kibbutz, I'm, a, I'm probably a capitalist at heart, but when you're on a kibbutz, you don't earn any money, right? So, um all the cassettes in the world can't feed you. Mm. Right? So I got a job as an English teacher, right? Which was a sort of side job from the kibbutz. And I had to go to Jerusalem to be taught how to be an English teacher. So I went for like uh, three days and I had to stand in front of this class and do all this nonsense and all this stuff. And it was kind of like repeating everything. There's loads of people in the class. And um, that was that. Fine. Went back. And then two weeks later, I went with my friends for a little holiday to Jerusalem. There, When we arrived, we went to the youth hostel where all the people went. I walked into a youth hostel and the guy working in the youth hostel was like, Richard, English teacher. And I was like, oh, hi. He's like, yeah, I know you. And he's like, uh, hey, listen, I'll get you a slightly better room, right? So me and my friends, we got a slightly better room. I was like, this is fucking cool, right? And then the next day, it was like, we went out to the bar where everyone drank, all the backpackers drank. It was called MASH. More alcohol served here. <laughs> and we walked in there and then we walked in the bar. Two of the bar staff were like, Richard. English teacher, I was like, yeah, like that, like, you want a free drink? Like that, so we got free drinks. I was like, oh, this is, this is it. This is absolutely amazing. I was like, well, I can't top this. So the next day we went to the old town of Jerusalem to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, which is mm. where Jesus's tomb is. And people travel from all over the world to see Jesus's tomb. So there's a big, huge line of pilgrims and we're all hung over and we're like sort of dust up to the front to see like what the deal is how long is it going to take like that and there's this like monk there with his hood down like this and he's like standing near the front and he looks up and takes his hood back and goes Richard fuck like, off yeah seriously fuck he goes, off. he goes are you here to see Jesus <laughs> and I was like yeah and he goes come in and he clicked open this velvet rope right took me and my friends in and he clicked it back down and we were in I had I had guesties for Jesus right so I was like 
this is it. I can't go and live a normal life now. Like I've got, I'm, 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 I'm 19 years old on a gap year, getting guest. I've got, I've got a plus one for Jesus, right? So I'm like, that, that's it. So I've always like thought when I go through my life and then like got this job where it's like, I want, I don't, I want to be on the guest list. You know what I mean? So anyway. Are you here I mean, to see Jesus? Are you here to see Jesus? What is if he, he's fucking Peter Andre? Yeah, but he but he was he was being doing in the a club class. set. He'd been like, in the class. So are you here to see Jesus? I was like, well, I'm not here for anything else, mate. <laughs> 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 I'm not at the Church of the Holy Sepulchre for any other reason, right? So anyway, fast forward, blah blah blah. You know me, right? Fast forward. Right? So I get to know my neighbour. This guy is called Joseph Malik, singer, well-known singer in Edinburgh, right? And he's big part of the Black Lives Matter movement in Edinburgh and he's organised stuff and I'm chatting to him in his garden over there and I'm chatting to him in his garden he goes oh, I'm doing this thing um, tomorrow down at St Andrew's Square and it was during the lockdown and he was like, like we're trying to get people down we're doing this sort of like BLM protesting he goes do you want to come down like come down with me and I was like yeah okay that'd be great he's like no 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 I'll put you on my list he goes Irving Welsh is coming down so I'm like alright cool so I'm like, I'm on the guest list for the Black Lives Matter movement, right? So, I mean, for anyone listening, I can't imagine anyone listening knows what I look like, but I've got a, a shaved head, a white man with a shaved head. So I get down there and there's like loads of police, right? There's loads of people. I can see there's all these people, right? All these like BLM protests and all this kind of stuff. I see all these people and I'm like walking up to this protest and I'm like, that's cool. So I get up to the entrance. The police are like, stood like that, going, oh, mate, what are you doing? And I was like, oh, I'm just here. To, I mean, I'm on, I'm on the guest list for black lives matter right. and uh i'm i'm, I'm in there and they're like, no like no you can't I'm like that. i said can i go in they're like well we can't we can't stop you mate so and the police kind of like move out the way i'm like jesus christ i mean i feel the pain of the blm movement here you know what i mean like this is tough like the fucking popo right yeah. so i go through right and i can see joe right my friend joe right i can see him over the other side of the barrier obviously because he's behind the velvet rope guesties for blm so i start waving at him right so i got my hand up waving at him like that and there's all these photographers like taking pictures i'm like waving a joe like that waving over there and, that, and then i was like i sort of look around me and i look left and i look right and i look around me and i was like there's lots of other men my age with skinheads who are white who are also got their hand aloft waving and i'd gone into the wrong side and I'd gone into the anti-BLM protest Damn. with all the English Defence wow. League, all these people. And I'm standing there like waving, like doing a fucking Nazi Jesus. salute while they're taking photos of me like this. And suddenly I realise, I get straight back out there. Like, and I said to the policeman, thanks for at least trying to yeah. stop me from getting in like that. And I go back round the other side like that. And I get round the other side. And like, oh, You'd gone in the way end. I'd gone in the way end. Uh, yeah. I'd gone in the way end. But it's because I look like an away end fan <laughs> at BLM do, you know. There's a documentary about it on BBC Scotland. It's still on the iPlane. I've not had, there's so many cameras pointing at me as I was like waving like that. I've not had the heart to watch it. So, so that was, what was that related to? That was uh, uh, the cover Cover of version. Johnny, Johnny Nash's I can see clearly <laughs> now. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, with all that ties, good stuff. Uh, right. Guilty pleasure. Right. I, d I don't think there is such a thing as a guilty pleasure because no, music neither do just I. moves neither you do so I. much, you know. But um, for this, I'd love to fight for this. Uh, 2005 by James Blunt. I wrote you a love song. Now it's something that you hate on. And I'm sad the record's broken. But I don't think I can write a better love song. Without it, I'd be no one. And now that you
Yeah, it's it's a really good song, mm-hmm. and it comes back to Owen, who we've mentioned before. Like um, Owen was played on James Blunt's last album, and um, it was like playing live in his band. There was this one song in it called 2005, which is brilliant because the lyrics are, and the kids liked it mm. as well. So we kept listening to it in the car and it, the lyrics are like, I, wo- I woke up this morning and I realized all I do is apologize for a song I wrote in 2005. So he's taught, he's singing years later about you're, you're beautiful, beautiful yeah. you know, which is like he wears it like a heavy, yeah. heavy, heavy is the head that wears the you're beautiful yeah. crown. Um, but it's a great song yeah, and he's got such a distinctive voice. You know, they're playing at Glasgow. We go and see them and I was like, come backstage afterwards. And so we come backstage and we meet James Blunt and I'm like, you know, I haven't fucked up meeting a celebrity since Ricky Ross. Since Jesus. <laughs> and I did really well there actually. <laughs> um, and it, so, and I met him and I was like, all right, yeah, cool. Nice to meet you, James. And he was like that. I said, oh, great show. And he was like, oh, thanks very much. And I, and I opened, and I said, I said, oh, I really like your stuff, James. And he goes, but I often find myself defending you in front of uh, real music fans. And he went, oh, good luck with that yeah and then i said i'm surprised you didn't do 2005 and he looked at me really baffled and i just looked back at him and i was like you know 2005 like it was like and he was baffled and i was like because he was baffled because it was such a slow song and they he's going i've got enough ballads without having to do a random album mm-hmm. track but i thought he was baffled because maybe he'd forgotten the song <laughs> so i was like you know the one I woke up this morning. Right, and I can see everyone, Julia, I, uh, I, everyone around me like looking at me going, what are you doing? And I was like, oh no, hang on. Jesus. So I'm standing there with James Blunt going, I woke up this morning and I realise all I do is apologise. And I was like, well, the, the next line's the good line, so I've got to keep going. Mm. For a song I wrote in 2005. Owen and Julia have lost their shit, right? James Blunt's looking at me like I'm a fucking idiot, right? And then he just... I finished singing and he goes, shall we just do the selfie now so I can go? Oh my God. <laughs> so we took the selfie. Jesus. And he went, and Owen's never worked with him since. I, I can't believe you made, like, because James Bond's one of the most kind of self-aware people in the world and you managed to turn it that bad with James Bond. That... It was going so well when I said, I defend, I, I find myself defending you to real music fans. <sighs> and he was, well, good luck with that. But then I sang... I think it would have been all right if I hadn't done it in his voice. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah that probably would have been because that like this song is like uh, he actually like I think I think he I think he delivers a song really really well because it makes other people sound like absolute pricks. Yeah, like it's the whole thing about we'll get a photo taken so that you can take a you can have a laugh with people. The line is shall we take a photograph so you can show it to your friends and laugh? Yeah, yeah it's a self awareness that's. But then he's also going like. This has made me millions. Yeah. And the fact that he goes, I, I'm, I'm really sorry I wrote this love song, yeah. but genuinely, write one better. Yeah, yeah. Honestly, write one better than one of the best known love songs of the past 20 years. It is a great song. You're uh, beautiful. Oh, You're Beautiful has been mentioned in this podcast a lot of a times. It is. Song. Moment or place. Common people. So 1996, I'm in Marseille. Mm-hmm. This is actually the good story of the the list. Mm-hmm. So I'm in Marseille, going to see Pulp in this tiny uh, bar in France. And um, I was doing a French degree and I went there with a bunch of other 
Anglophones who were studying French. Jarvis Cocker, it was an amazing gig and it was towards the end of my year in France. And Jarvis is on stage and they are peak of their powers, but mm. they're menswear with a support band. And they're nice. in a bar where there was like 90 people. 40 of us in that bar were English speakers who were doing French degrees. And Jarvis kept speaking French between the songs. So, hey, merci, mesdames, messieurs, like that. But his French was terrible. Mm. I, mean, I mean, we're all like arrogant French students like that. So I started heckling him, going, Jarvis, speak English, like that. And he was like, looking at me, going, carried on speaking French. Did another song. Next time, and he started speaking. I was like, Jarvis, speak English. And he was, and then he looked at me like that with his withering look, which was like, young man, why don't you go and buy yourself a phrase book? And I was like, no, no, we understand. It's just you're grammatically all over the place. Like, so, you know, it didn't go quite that you well. Heckled with your... Jarvis Cocker. Yeah, yeah, because he was speaking such terrible French to a bunch of, like, arrogant students who were French students, you yeah, know, so it wasn't like, very good. Like, I was well into, like, the James Blunt incident slide, but yeah. you heckled Jarvis Cocker. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He wasn't Jarvis Cocker back then. No, he's always been Jarvis Cocker. Yeah, I know, he wasn't famous back then. Maybe that's maybe more to the point. But the thing was, at the end of that night, was a, that night went wonky, right? Because we all had a lot of fun. And we'd the, the bizarre thing is that we ended up going out drinking with the people from menswear and the drummer from Pulp. And the weirdest thing was the week before E17 had come mm. to Marseille and somehow we ended up meeting them. And I think it was just this, this thing about English speakers all met together. And... Um, it ended up where uh, we all had a bit too much to drink. And in the old port in Marseille, it's this beautiful place where there's all these boats and everything. And at the end of the night, there was a few of us and we jumped over the fence. And I and I was like, you know, we're like, come on, let's go and just go and sit on a boat. Look at all these beautiful boats, let's go and sit on one. We jumped over the fence and there's three of us. Suddenly the security guard appeared and it was this like toothless old French man. And he's like, qu'est-ce que vous faites? Like that. And I was like, ah, oh. and I thought I can deal with this. I've got this. And I was like, sorry, and I said in French, uh, excuse-moi, monsieur, uh, nous voulons prêter un bateau pour faire le petit tour de Vieux-Port, which means we want to borrow a boat and just have a little tour. Mm. This is like two in the morning, right? And the guy pulled a gun out. Jesus, his belt, what? Right? And he put it right into my forehead, mm -hmm. right? And I was like, I don't think he's going to shoot me for this. I think <laughs> this is just a warning. It was this weirdest feeling, like, and put it in the thing. And also, as the gun came out, I remember thinking... I think that's a starter pistol. I mean, that will burn, but it won't kill me, right? And he said, and I'll never forget it, he said, Arrête de casser ma Toi et ta bande petit con. Which means stop busting my balls, you and your group of little assholes. Like that. And I went, Monsieur, je suis désolé. And we'll go. <laughs> I turn around and say to my friends, fucking hell, how about that? And they'd gone. <laughs> right, they'd absolutely run. Like so it was like that night of seeing Pulp and like heckling Jarvis and then having this gun in my head. But the weirdest thing of like going, I know this isn't the moment I'm gonna get shot. I know it was the weirdest yeah. I mean, I don't know, I mean it was very relatable for all the listeners, like, you know <laughs> Hidden Gem, you've picked your Pal Owens band. Yeah. And a song called The Best Umbrella. Well, Owen and I uh, became friends when we were about 16. So I went to, uh, at my 
friend Nick, who I've also mentioned, got kicked out of our school when he was 16 and went to school around the corner. And Owen went to the school around the corner and they became friends. And then I kind of hung out more with them than the people at my school. And Owen was a prodigious musician, you know, and, um, you know, multi-instrumentalist could play anything that he heard once. And, um, you know, and then he has gone on. You know, I feel we've talked a lot like he's gone on to become an amazing songwriter who has I mean he has written songs for the Pet Shop Boys for um, uh, Simple Minds for James Blunt for Robbie Williams but one of the things that's sort of the most amazing thing about him is his, his ability to understand music and then he very after a long a lot of persuading from people around him he finally got around to doing an album of uh-huh. his own stuff and the song, um, the Umbrella song, you know, the best Umbrella is just, I think it's just a phenomenal That's song. That's great. Uh, it, it, it builds like pure pop. It's just such, it's got a lovely sentiment in the lyric and it's got everything that is like Tears for Fears, like, you know, um, uh, any sort of great pop of the sort of late 80s, 90s, Toto, you know, yeah. those sort of elements of all of that. And for him of doing the album, that has been his calling card for why he's now at the top table, you know. So he's on the, he's just done a song with Ed Sheeran and Passenger. Yeah. He's just done three songs for the new Robbie Williams album. He's working again with Simple Minds. We have this thought between us, him and I, which I think is quite interesting, which is like, if what we're doing now with me, and the comparisons between us are, aren't real, you gave me the career I'm having now. When I started, I wanted to make TV and radio shows, right? And I want, and it's taken a long time to get here. And when he started, he wanted to be doing all these big pop songs. And I mean, he's some like musical director. Robbie ran their Las mm. Vegas shows, you know, done these stadium stuff. And he's the same age as me, 47. And it's all in the last three or four years sort of really come together for him. And in the same way with me, how we've built up to this point. And we keep talking of like, if we were given this when we were 25 we'd be dead now, mm. you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You yeah. know, it was like, and that's, we were sort of chasing this when we were that age yeah. and didn't quite get it. And um, he's now at that point where he, it's all happening for him now. Yeah. But thankfully he's, he's 47 and not 27. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I mean, he's a genius. He really he's is. He's a musical genius he because really having watched for some through the show. Yeah. Um, for anyone that listens to the good, bad and unexpected, whenever I pretend to play an instrument, it is always Owen. Yeah. that manages to rattle it up. Like, I've I've been through here where we've been recording and we've started the recording about 10 minutes and you've phoned Owen to go, is there any chance yeah. you could rustle up a grunge version of 9 to 5 by yeah. Dolly Parton in the next 10 minutes? And it's like, it's generally incredible. Yeah. Like, he's an absolute musical prodigy. He's a prodigy. And, and the thing with Owen is that I always used to say about him was because of seeing him work and being with him when he works, is that Owen can go into any musical situation, any studio with anybody in the world, and the other people in the studio will defer to him. Now, that was always uh, something that I always thought was maybe just me saying that, you know, because I was trying to explain to people who didn't know him how good he was. And when he came up with us and did this show with Suggs and Paul Weller and Boy George and Jazzy B and we were like live on stage and doing these rehearsals. When I was in these moments with Owen when he was on stage and Paul Weller and Suggs mm-hmm. were going, sorry Owen, what, where, where do I start? What Can you say that again? And then and Weller was saying, 
asking him what just when do I come yeah. in like that and and it was like oh it's true yeah you know it's true it's real right yeah and like you know he loves it and he's doing well out of it and he's doing really well but like the point is is like Robbie Williams the last three songs that Robbie's done for his new album like Owen has like written and produced with mm. Robbie and these other people as well but like he's driving that yeah and he's driving this this stuff now and it's fascinating to see it it's fascinating to see like the, his apprenticeship has been 20 years yeah you know I can't really put my finger on how impressed I am by him and how hard he's worked mm. and how much he's failed and how much he got wrong and how much it didn't happen and mm. how much it didn't quite work out for him to get to this position to actually being when Guy Chambers isn't available he's it's a go-to Robbie. guy he's yeah, the go-to yeah. guy he's, yeah. he's the go-to guy and he's actually now consistently writing and producing and working with heritage artists yeah. that are, at, are mine and his age He's not going to write the next bloody, I don't know, Ariana Grande song or Storm. I don't know. Yeah. It's James Blunt. It's Robbie Williams. It's Simply yeah. Red. It's Simple Minds. It's 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 that era of stuff. And listening to his own album, the Our Hands Are Tied by Parker's Band, is a joy to listen yeah. to, you know. Well, he's going he's to be coming on. Yeah. He's going to be coming on the podcast. And hopefully we'll tell the story about the time he queued up and skipped in to see Allah. <laughs> right. Next one. No one. Surely no one wants to hear any more from me. Yes. That, that, this'll edit down right, okay, brilliantly. Cool, cool. No, because we need to do the last the last two songs are class. Um favourite song, right. Graceland. Graceland. Okay, I'll keep that pretty tight, Paul really. Simon. I'm going to Graceland, Graceland, Memphis, Tennessee, I'm going to Graceland. Uh, my dad was into Paul Simon, Graceland. Um, the, the, I love that song so much that there's a few lines of um, where, you know, losing love is like a window in your heart. Everybody sees you be blown apart. And um, there's a line about going to Graceland with my nine-year-old son who's the child of my first marriage and all of that stuff. Mm-hmm. But for me, it was my dad playing that album and the, and the opening line of it being the Mississippi Delta was shining like a national guitar. Um, just the imagery of it was so vast and also we bought a, a brand new Maestro when it was an A-Reg A334WGP was the registration of that car and we got Paul Simon Graceland on cassette from HMV for £5.49 and my dad put it in the tape player he put it on Graceland came on he turned the sound up and he blew the speakers oh yes and then the stereo never worked properly again after that um, but I think Graceland probably is my favourite one of my favourite songs of all time but and I think it's the connection with Paul Simon mm. and the memories of my dad because Paul Simon also did a song called Father and Daughter I yeah you know. and it's the song is about I'll stand guard like a postcard of a golden retriever and uh, I can't promise that there won't be any monsters under your bed but I'll stand guard like a postcard mm. of a golden retriever and the line in the chorus has never been a father who's loved his daughter more than I love you and when my daughter was born my dad um, gave me a postcard of a golden retriever. And wow. I didn't get it when wow. he gave it to me. And it took me a couple of days for that penny to drop. Jesus. So everything to do with Paul Simon, but particularly yeah. Graceland. Do you know who sings the backing vocals in this song? On Graceland? Mm. It's the Everly Brothers. Is it? Mm. Simon and Garfunkel basically idolised the Everly Brothers. Right. And 
with this song, he had re- he tried to write. It's a weird song because he, he tried to write because he was like the rest of Graceland. So because he, he went to make, he went to South Africa to make this yeah, album yeah, yeah. and and brought in so many traditional musicians. And at the time, because apartheid was still a a huge like most most people wouldn't even visit uh, South Africa because of the apartheid movement, and certainly bands were vilified if they even set foot. But the UN almost supported Paul Simon going there because he was only going to use black musicians. He was only going to use rural musicians and he was very interested in promoting this local music. And he, black man bars, and he was yeah. very interested in highlighting the yeah. anti-apartheid movement. Yeah. So he did this and then he, he went to record a song and he met up with um, various local musicians and whatever whatever drum beat that they managed to make, whatever whatever combination of drum beat and bass that they managed, it reminded them of the early Sun Records recordings that Elvis used to do. Right. And that's why he created this song around Graceland. And it was him travelling to Graceland and the fact that he'd, he'd just split up with his first yeah, wife yeah, yeah, yeah. and he had his son as his companion. Yeah, and yeah. then as he was writing it, he, he felt like it was the best Everly, song, Everly Brothers song right. that they never recorded. So then he just asked them, would you do the backing vocals on it? And they did it. Which probably pissed Art Garfunkel off a lot because they fucking hated each other at this point. So That's a great story because I didn't know that story. But I, I actually think for me, and you know, music's so you know, subjective, but all, whatever. But I think Paul Simon is, is possibly, for me, one of the greatest recording artists mm. of our time. And one of the reasons for it is, is that how effortless it is. He's never... It, it, it's Graceland is a prime example of like it flows as a story mm. it's got a story it's got everything in it if you go and look on YouTube at some old stuff of him there's a, some stuff of them talking to Parkinson about Homeward Bound mm. and him he sings it just picks up his guitar and sings Homeward Bound and it is one of the most incredible things ever it is genuinely jaw dropping but there's another story about when he talks about Bridge Over Troubled Waters with, with, with Garfunkel mm-hmm. And he was like going, you know, their partnership was a two-way partnership, but he wrote all the songs, but oh, already he had the voice, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, But then he realised when he'd written Bridge Over Troubled Water, it, it was in a key that suited Art Garfunkel's voice. And Art was like going, no, you should sing it. He was going, no, you should sing it. So Art Garfunkel sang it. And um, he said, then as we were going on together, like as Simon and Garfunkel, he goes, there comes this point where Bridge Over Troubled Waters would come about. And he goes, and I'd have to go and stand to one side while Art Garfunkel mm-hmm. sang our masterpiece. Mm-hmm. And he'd be like going, uh, and then at the end of the song, Art Garfunkel would then thank the piano player, yeah. thank the crowd, thank all these people. And he goes, and that's now why we don't work together it's anymore. Like, and it was really interesting. Like when people think about hatreds between, like if you think about the Gallagher brothers, or yeah. they think about the way Axel Rose and Slash used to hate each other, or... Yeah. The kinks when they were about, like yeah. there is, there is very few hatreds that yeah. are more extreme yeah. than Paul Simon and Art Garfunkel. Like they cannot, they, and even when they got back together and they did the Central the, Park, uh, the Central stuff, Park yeah. you can still see mm. the sheer tension between the two of them, and they're both trying, and that's what makes it so good because they're both trying to outdo each other yeah. to to prove who's the best. Because well, it's Paul com- Simon. Well, um, 100%. well, no, it is, it is, pro, it is probably. I mean, not necessarily in, in terms of in the si- late sixties and seventies, who had the best voice. There's a debate there. Yeah, but who as a no, I agree, I agree, I agree. No, he, he he was the creative yeah. mastermind behind yeah, them. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. then he didn't do Bright Eyes, which is a phenomenal song. So 
Do you like Bright Eyes? I Genuinely. love Bright Eyes. What do you think of the Frog Chorus? Uh, I, I don't. I don't see the comparison. Well, there's songs that are maybe both about animals that are both have a consideration of yeah, being yeah, a little bit now. No, but then you could go. But frog what do you, what do you, what do you think like, of Bright Eyes? What do you think of Who Let the Dogs Out? That's not. No, they're both about they're animals. Both, they're both. But Frog Chorus is an absolute masterpiece. Like, no, it's not. Oh, I can't wait it's till you've got Owen on your podcast it's next terrible. week. I can't wait. That's <laughs> why he will deconstruct. And the way I talked to you about that darkness guitar solo, the Slade, come on, feel the noise. No, no, you're going to have like, uh, like this, this is being like, frog this, this, this is, amazing. Yeah. Right, closing song. Oh, come on now. Right, because I need to get home and I'm gonna. it's going to take me about 19 hours to, to edit this motherfucker. So, closing song, Lady well, Gaga, You and I. Yeah, I just really like it. It's so good. I love it's it so, so much, but also it is a song, I'm going to say this, a be all slushy and... And uh, it's a song. It's mine and Julia's song, right. and it's like it's you know, and it was this whole thing about not having seen someone for a long time, and you know, like you know, we didn't we Julia and I, you know, used to work together years and years and years ago, and then we always got on well and had a connection, but we didn't. We went our separate ways, got married, had children, did all that kind of stuff with other people, and I remember like after a long time of not seeing Julia, seeing her in a bar, and that song was playing, and it was this whole thing about been a long time since you'd been around and it was like six whole years or mm. something like that and it was like this time I ain't leaving without you and it sort of both struck us and put us both on a slightly different path and um, I love that song and I love it at the end of the night nowadays with everything that we're doing with all the people we're with and all the places we're at that it's when it's me and her at the end of the night behind that closed door we stick that song on and yeah. you know so it might not be the exact closing song of like Loch Lomond or no, no, but no, no but that's, or, that's, that's, but what, that's what this song should me, be about you know, it's you know. It, it's it's unlike any Lady Gaga song. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah, like yeah. it's a proper country yeah, 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 yeah. banger. Like yeah. it's like and Brian May plays on it. Oh, does he? Brian May plays. I the, did not now know here's that. the thing I didn't even realize. Um, so this samples "We Will Rock You." Right. Right. So the drum beat is basically "We Will Rock You." Brian May plays on it, okay. and I never made the connection. The fact that Lady Gaga is named because of our love of Queen. Lady Gaga. I've oh, never realised wow. that in my life until I was thinking yeah, it, and, I until until, right and, until I was listening to that song and then reading up about oh. it. She's such a massive, and and she only asked Brian May for a laugh because wow. she thought there's no fucking way he'll ever play on this, and he was like, yeah, absolutely, yeah. But no, I just love that song so much and the whole thing of Nebraska, Nebraska. There's a bit in the song again. It's look, it's all bullshit. But it's a massive it's tribute only... to Springsteen that as well. Yeah, Nebraska, it, Nebraska, yeah, yeah. I love you. Rich, thank you so much for this. It's been a lot of fun. It's going to be a hell of an edit. I'll try and keep it. Give it to Al. (laughs) Al will do it. But Al will cut out everything that I say and leave your stories in. And go, Uh, so Lady Gaga, go, yeah, I really love that song. Do you know Brian May plays on that song we'll hear? You know, which is probably quite right. Uh, Right, thank you very much, man. Well, thank you for asking me and thank you for listening. But I'm back in town And this time I'm not Leaving without you
And that's that. Thank you very much to Richard for coming on the show. Thank you very much to allowing us to use his flat to record the episode. Really, really hope you enjoyed it. As always, I will put up all of Richie's contact details, his social media, all that kind of stuff. And I'll put a link to Dabster Productions, which is a production company. And you can see all the fantastic shows that they make. His playlist will also be on the podcast description as well, obviously. Um, all my social details will be on there. Uh, big news, big news. I have joined TikTok because <laughs> apparently uh, coronavirus turned me into a 13-year-old girl. So, yeah, I'm on TikTok now. I'm putting up stand-up clips on there. Older clips. Uh, there'll be some news at three stuff, if anyone remembers that. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's going all right so far. Like, I've not managed to resort to dancing like a prick at all yet. So, quite chuffed. And, uh, yeah, so you can catch me on there, at Mark Nelson Comic. Again, it'll all be up in the podcast description. Um, the special has now been delayed. I'm probably going to release it on my birthday now, which is the 19th of November just because the, I, I lost, like, 10 days of being able to do anything, any work at all. Because of the coronavirus, uh, anyway, I'll stop banging on about the fact I had... Did I tell you, have I told you yet on the podcast that I did have coronavirus? Yes, please feel sorry for me. And I'll be back. I shall be back next week with another cracking guest. Uh, as always, if you want to leave us a review, then that would be fantastic. If you want to write us a review, that's even better. But just tell your pals. Like I say, if if anyone, if you know anyone that loves music, if you know anyone that loves comedy, please tell your pals. We've got some very, very interesting guests coming up. I will leave you with the words of Paul Simon, who said, Music is forever. Music should grow and mature with you, following you right up until you die. See you next week. Bye-bye.